Welcome, ye trout bum troubadours, ye hatch matching, code cracking bug crusaders. And of course, especially today, we have for you two handed, perfect D loop spay casting savours, a very charming man on the return of Hollowed Waters podcast. We are in search of places in the galaxy of trout, salmon, and steelhead places and experiences and to contribute to our legacy of all the great guests that we've had. So welcome back, folks. Um, We've been gone for the holidays, um, and uh, we are starting off the new year to 2023 uh, with some great, great guests that we are going to have. Great, great guests, like some guys says. Um... And um, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I think we're going to get some really, really good uh, information from this one. Um, first off, I'd like to say that we actually saw the sun um, yesterday for three hours. It's been over six, seven weeks uh, since we've um, seen the sun in Michigan. So my Verilux Happy Vitamin D lamp has been burning uh, out of control um, because I might be like one of you people out there that seem to get in a in a little bit of a pickled uh, mess of uh, brain fog when uh, we don't see sunshine. And I was um, on the East Coast over the holidays visiting my son and fishing all the limestone spring creeks of Pennsylvania, and I saw the sun every day, and it was blue skies and sunshine, so I was so amazed. But here in Michigan, due to that condensation, and now we don't have any snow on the ground after having the most snow we've ever had in December. In 100 years, we now have no snow. The birds are singing. They think it's spring, and um, welcome to climate change. But um, uh, so that has been the winter so far, and uh, to all you wonderful guests Subscribers to the Hollow Waters podcast, um, thank you for listening. Our our uh, subscribership is going crazy. We are getting uh, emails and messages from people all over the world saying they love what they're hearing because we are, as Rene Descartes said, the cognito ergo sum guys that like to think deep into what this angling adventure and passion dictates. And that's what um, we promise you. Uh, in the new year to bring you more iconic guests, uh, not just a bunch of old white dudes hanging out and chatting. We're going to uh, to try to bring you people that really made an impact in our sport and our legacy and our in our journey into this wonderful thing. So, um, you know, t- today's guest is is really special. And before we get into introducing him, um, I would like to say to all the people in Ukraine, hang in there. Blessings to you guys. Um, we're, we're treating it as like it's not a war anymore, but it's getting to be crazy. And and the images that we see in the media uh, is is unbelievable in this day and age to have World War II type of behavior going on. Uh, so damn that man, uh, Putin, and what you're doing. And uh, we pray for blessings. And thank you to all the Polish people that have brought in the Ukrainian people and uh, the strength that we're giving these people. Uh, our prayers and blessings are with you. Also, um, um, much needed prayers and blessings to people that are going through hardship in their life right now, people that are in hospitals, people that cannot go fly fishing or fishing or hunting or any type of a sport because of incapacities and, and, and illnesses and things that are happening in their life. We wish you 
Many blessings and the best, and we hope you could tune in with us to talk and listen and be on the stream with us talking about the things that you love, uh, which is fishing. And uh, we hope for a speedy recovery and hope for you and yours to have a better and more prosperous new year in 2023 since we've all been through some crazy hell in the past and it, and it just seems to get crazier. But um, it's all we have is will and faith and, and hope to keep going stronger. Um, so that is pretty much that in that regard. So stay with us and we will bring you more of these great, great podcasts. Uh, I want to get into our guest today. Um, our guest is, and we are in the Migratory Space Series. And in this Migratory Space Series, uh, the subject today is a passion for steelhead. And we have a very iconic band um, that, um, that, along with the great books written by Trey Combs and Bill McMillan and Lonnie Waller and all these people on the West Coast, uh, he is a founding member of this whole classic swinging fly chase for indigenous West Coast steelhead. Um, he is, uh, is, is, is about as nuts and bolts and pure, real deal guy that you're probably going to ever meet. Um, I've had the pleasure of talking to him. He's, he's written very nice things for Hollowed Waters Journal, which is coming out in print very shortly. So bear with us. I know I've been saying that for a while, but it's, it's quite a tedious process, but we're going to the next level. And I think you'll like what you see. But this man, um, he, he wrote the passion and the passion for steelhead and, and he lives and breathes it. He, he, he has a heart of gold. Um, he has a mind for steelhead. Um, and it's rare that you find these iconic characters. And we've had, you know, some great ones on, uh, Tom Larimer, Simon Gosworth, these guys, uh, Rick Kustich, uh, really big for Brown, people that love the swing, love, love the spay passion. And, uh, and this uh, big, strong dude is one of them. Um, so without further ado, um, uh, may I introduce uh, the Micus Maestro that mocks the mindless mend, the true Skagit sensei that savored the sweetness of a storied steelhead past, and a unique icon that puts out fires and saves lives in his daily duties in reality. As well as douses water on bad spake casting practices that flare up from lack of mentoring and nurturing. Ladies and gentlemen of the space swinging sweetness, I welcome the one and only Deck Hogan. Mr. Deck Hogan, how the hell are you today? <laughs> After that intro, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> Who's that guy you're talking about? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's the guy that 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 sent me the check. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't. I I I didn't cash it yet. But I think it said Deck Hogan. Uh, I, you know, I usually get these checks for these intros. Well, let's but, cash um, it now. <laughs> so, um, Deck, it's been a quite a morning for you. Uh, it's yeah. been quite a year for you. We Deck, um, tell us about what happened to you this morning. Uh, well, I was anticipating this time with you. We've been kind of trying to put this together for a couple months, I think. And we finally got the day and, uh, my wife's on a business trip to Atlanta. So I'm kind of bacheloring at home and got up with the dogs at 5 AM, the two big black labs to feed them and the power was out. <laughs> so the power doesn't need to go out for very long here. And I immediately thought about your podcast, but I keep a little headlamp next to my bed from uh experience in life so i put that bad boy on got the dogs fed 
anticipated the power coming on. It never came on, never came on. I alerted you. And then uh, I got out my, got innovative, got out my goal zero power pack and plugged it in and got my phone to hotspot my computer. I don't know how I learned all this stuff, but Dude, that was impressive. Never, I was shocked. I was shocked. And then I get with you and my, my, uh, I need to update my zoom because I'm only zoomed once several years ago. Um, and then, uh, and then I found that I need to update my computer to get my camera to work. So my wife had her, her, her uh, computer here and we we're up and running. Oh my oh. god, that was I was really impressed. You know, for somebody, you know, like the I thought I saw the Geek Squad van from um from Best Buy yeah. leave your your place in the back window, so maybe that was it. But I was pretty impressed how quickly my new job. I was I was amazed. Yeah. So uh so that beside when when I when you said your power was out this morning, I was like, Oh my god, this is like giving birth. And and I said, Hey, yeah. we're here. Uh let's talk Steelhead, the passion for Steelhead. Yeah. Um I'm going to start off, you know, you, you, your life right now, uh, you're a firefighter, but most, most, some people don't know about that. You're living in Utah. Um, yep. You do spade classes. You do float trips. You're still out there doing wonderful yep. things. Um, you're still chasing steelhead. Um, yep. Give us give us a little bit of your take um, on the last couple of years on the Pacific West Coast, um, the devastating things that have happened. Where do you see it now? Where do you see it going? Um, yeah. Give us your whole thing. So, yeah, cool. If, if you don't mind, just because you you introduced a couple of things, I'm just going to just quickly bring you up to speed on where I am, and then and then I'll answer that question. But uh, I I was a steelhead fly fishing guide full time for many years in Washington and Oregon, and then uh, had a big change in life um, in the early 2000s after a long career as full time guide. Like I said. And uh, it was after that that I had the big career uh, life change. Uh, I moved to Utah and uh, got a job as a full-time firefighter EMT uh, with Layton Fire Department in Utah. And something I kind of always wanted to do but never would have because of my guiding success. Uh, and here I am. And since... Since that time, I, 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 we've got this wonderful schedule where we work two days on and four days off. So my part-time job is staying with my love of teaching fly fishing and two-handed casting. And um, I travel all over the nation and various parts of the world and teach this thing many times a year. And then uh, two-day two-handed schools and we, you know, and also fishing. So I've been really busy with that. And I've authored several books uh, in that time and all kinds of other things involved in, in the world of my passion with fishing. So um, with that, I do, uh, I, I probably, I probably touch more people now than I did when I was guiding full time. Cause I just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of time have come to my schools and classes and read my books and, um, I'm just in, I'm really into sharing. So now the, the, the plight of the steelhead. Um, yeah. Bummer. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. And the last few years we've seen it. When I say it, I'm not just talking about the Columbia river drainage. I'm talking Northern BC to Northern, Northern California to Northern BC. Um, populations are in decline and we all know that. Um, particularly wild populations. In fact, when I talk about steelhead, we're just going to talk about the wild ones um, uh, on the West Coast. But uh, 
you know, what, what's wrong? Boy, am, am I, the, am I the person to really be that voice? I don't know. There's so many people that have dedicated their lives to, to, uh, to, to helping steelhead and the rivers and whatnot. And, and they're way more active in that than I am. But, but I do know that, and we all know that urbanization, logging, gill netting, tribal netting, overfishing, urbanization, uh, ocean conditions, more predation than ever, all these things coming at this fish. And then, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, climate change, um, it's, you know, I, I can't prove or disprove why there's climate change, but there's no question that there is climate change and that's got to have an effect to some degree. Um, and then each individual river system has its own problems. In addition to all these things, um, we, you know, we could spend hours pinpointing on what they are. Um, I, I I'm also optimistic sometimes, and I've always been this part of my job as a guide and instructor is to be the ultimate cheerleader. Um, I want to, I want to, you know, spread the passion and, and we, we enjoy and love the method so much. We want to be out there. We want to do it. And if there's one steelhead in that river and, and, you know, I, I, I can cut my hook off and fish for it just to get that grab or, or just to, to go through the process. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know, there's a lot of mystery in the ocean and, and I know that firsthand in my research, uh, that even the, the highest, level of scientists and biologists will tell you that we're not entirely sure what those steelhead do out in the ocean and where they go and what they do. Um, certainly ocean conditions are factoring into this as well. And uh, um, you, know, you, you asked me to, to talk a lot. So here I go. There's one thing that I, I wanted to get off my chest and, and uh, this is something that's been, I've been feeling strongly lately it's it's not altogether positive and I need to be positive, but this is reality. I have been, I'm careful when I say this, but I have been doing this for, you know, as long as you have, <laughs> I've been at it for going on 40 years now with the, well, I've been fishing for 55 years. So I started when I was four or five years old in any event, been with steelhead game for a long time. And when I got into it and I was just live breathe ate. I just wanted to lick it off the wall nonstop 24 seven. Um, at that time, the guys much older than me were talking about, well, you know, it's not like it used to be and, and things are getting bad. And, and then these clubs are popping up and, and, and crusading to save the, the steelhead and to rehab the rivers and to stop the logging and to all this stuff and, and donate here and write your legislatures. This is way back when. And you know what? Every year I watch my friends and people who I admire dedicate their lives and write the letters and do the fundraisers and go to the meetings and look at the science year after year after year after year after year after year after year. And guess what? It's the same damn things happening right now and nothing's improved. And that is really hard for me to be encouraged. And I, I'm telling all of you, don't stop. Don't stop. We've got to keep on. We've got to do what we think we need to do to help this thing. But I, I and I hate to be negative, but what do you think, Matt? I mean, nothing's gotten better. It just keeps getting worse. And uh, you, you can tell I'm getting a little riled up over that. Um, 
damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's brutal, and uh, I I tear myself apart every day. We're having pro- we're having big problems in the Great Lakes right now, and our our ecosystem is changing. Um, uh, climate change is a big factor. Um, in a lot of this because we're having floods. We're having floods when we should have droughts. We're having droughts when we should have floods. We're yeah, having sure. warm weather in January with thunderstorms in the first week in January where we should be locked down with ice. We had uh, incredible snowfall. Uh, so we're, we're having all kinds of – our run timing. Steelhead, people – this is called the migratory space series. And migratory fish thrive off stability, okay? Everything in nature – and I'm doing a – a piece now for Hollywood Waters Journal about a, a little spring creek in Pennsylvania called the Big Spring. And Vince Marinero, the very icon of Cumberland Valley fly fishing terrestrials, he wrote, he, it was his shooting back then. Yeah, 40, 50, 50 years, uh, 40s and 50s and 30s. He wrote Modern Dry Fly Code in the Ring of the Rise. He he worshipped this big spring, and I fished it when I was in D.C. for 10 years every single weekend, and I fell in love with it. And my, I got married on the Yellow Breaches, and I just spent a week there with my friends uh, that are guides there, and nothing seems to change, and they just invented million, invested millions of dollars. They closed the hatchery down, make things perfect. So I think um, what's happening Today, more than ever, is we have turned into so to being so self-absorbed about ourselves that sometimes our agendas over oversee the agendas of the fish. We are a generation, a, a now social media, totally vanity fueled heroics what makes us happy for the moment is not what makes the fish happy for a moment and i'm seeing it everywhere and it's one of the reasons i started hollow waters journal is because we're we're not paying attention to the fish and what sometimes we just need to let these fish go and and we tend to do a lot of things let's improve this stream let's go out and do this let's it's all about me 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 us us me 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 and and sometimes today i think that everybody has sort of gotten fed up with everything to the point where we have such a blase, um, I don't know how to put it, but like we, we overdid ourselves in talking about what we should do. And then after it's like a baby crying, after the baby cries, it just collapses and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I think we're kind of living in the dark ages. And I keep saying that because we seem to be so absorbed by these fish, but yet how much do we really actually do or, or, or sometimes we overthink it. And I think, you know, this is the, the mind boggling thing. You know, I had a few people on and talking about the West coast and they said, you know, it's not as bad as they say it is, or, or it is as bad as they say it is. Or, and it, depending on who you're going to talk to, depending on if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're a Trump or, or a Biden, or you're going to, the world is so divided right now. And how the hell do we get back on track of worshiping the fish and not worshiping our, ourselves? That, that that I that's what's really upsetting me more than anything. Well, that um, yeah, and that 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 I, I also find you know in the fishing years and years ago that 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 division um, is within the user groups too. I mean, exactly. irrespective your demo, your uh, political affiliation there's infighting yeah. infighting 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 there's this group and that group and that group and they can't even get it together you know and, that, and we're just talking about fishing I'm, you know talking about our, our our nation right now which which i want to stay focused on fishing but uh 
it, it uh, models the same thing. I mean, it, it the does, vision we have, it does. but know, it always has. And, and that's a big problem. And that's where, again, I want to be optimistic, but you know, what do you do? I mean, you have, you know, with, with what you're saying, you know, what, what is the answer? How do we, we, okay. So we're okay. So we, we drop our vanity, we drop our self selfishness and we want to focus on this fish. Now what it's, it's huge. It's, it's a major large scale yeah. with, with an almost infinite number of tributaries and feeding or uh, spawning streams and this ginormous ocean and, you know, things get small. I, I understand that it's, it's not infinite, but it's massive. And like I said earlier, each river system has its own problems, but yep. I, let's talk about fun stuff. Yeah. And, and yes, we got a lot of stuff, but that was uh but that, you know, we have to get into that. And one thing yep. I do, what one thing I do, I want to just on the end to end that note, um, we, I applaud the fact that you're closed, that you've closed things. And, and I think one big problem we have here in the Great Lakes is we still sp- fish to spawning fish. We have no sanctuaries. We have no closures. No. Yeah. When I was growing up, there were sanctuaries. There were closures. You couldn't do this. Now it's 24 seven fish, 24 seven, whatever brings the money in money, 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 money. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy named Bob York. He was, he was in Perro's. Um, uh, magazines, the the infamous no, Bob, Bob York, and Bob York said, "Politics and money and wild steelhead will never mix," and that's yep. the bad cocktail, and that seems to be the problem, <laughs> and it seems to be the problem today. But hell, we're going to talk about exciting things. Let's talk about passion for steelhead. Uh, mm-hmm. You wrote that iconic book. When did when did passion for steelhead come out? So it came out in two thousand six. But one one thing though, it, it, this, despite our doom and gloom. Um, there is still opportunity and the steelhead do need us on the river. Um, absolutely. And absolutely. standing in that river, swinging the fly is, is just absolutely wonderful. And uh, we're, we're in, and you can catch them. They're, they're still out there. And, you know, we, we treat them with respect and take care of them. Um, the river, you know, they need friends, you know, the, the, uh, the closers happen, but if the water's open, I say go fish it and just absolutely full of the fish and and your fellow anglers. So, right. uh, so next topic: yeah. passion for steelhead. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm glad we got that out of the way because that's yeah. important. But, um, yeah. So, um, passion for so, how did you come up with it? Uh, did Pero when did he did he did he introduce a deck? We got to write this book. You know, deck, you're amazing. You're doing, you know, you're the man. Uh, how do you, how did you go? How did that whole uh, so, process start? Yeah. So, you, you know, just being into it and loving to talk to people and enjoying writing. I did, you know, good in my English classes in school. I sucked at math and was good at <laughs> English and writing and speaking and things like that. At least I enjoyed it. I don't know if I was very good at it, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I started writing magazine articles. That's another story on how that started. But I started writing some magazine articles for uh, Frank Amato Publications, specifically right. the Trout Steelheader and Fly Fishing Magazine way back when. Yep. And uh, and really enjoyed it and loved the feedback I got and and uh, uh, went from there. And then Tom Pirro came around um, after leaving the Trout uh, Unlimited and right. uh, that magazine that, um, and started up Wild Steelhead and Atlantic salmon and uh, met him. And he, he asked me to write a little story for, for the magazine. And I was of course thrilled. And that first story in that magazine, incidentally, you know, we lost the wonderful Dave Whitlock just recently. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually the, yeah. That's an excerpt from the book. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But yeah. Uh, Dave Whitlock uh, illustrated my first article for his magazine. So that was quite an honor back then. And, and Tom liked what I was doing and kept asking me to, to, uh, to write for him. And of course I did. And, and that was a kind of a high profile magazine. So it helped my guide business too, and just getting my name out and, and uh, people liked what I was writing and what I was saying. And, and then it was actually my friend, Keith Balford um, said to me one day, when we were up on the Skagit and I'm guiding, stayed in the silk cab, he goes, dude, you need to write a book. It's yep. time. The time you're is gonna, now. You're going to be famous. You're going to write a book and you're going to make yeah. millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And have the geek squad out front. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> it's my computer woes. Anyway. Uh, so I, um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. So I, I thought about doing this book and I talked to Tom and, and Tom thought it was a great idea. And, and, uh, we just started, started from there and, and, uh, um, I started writing it and I had a couple things I had already written and, and, uh, magazine articles, which we did put in there and I modified them a little bit. And, but the bulk of the book was freshly written and, uh, I just kind of shot from the hip and my idea was to, to, uh, certainly not to become famous and wealthy by like helping people. And, um, I saw some holes in, in there's some wonderful literature and, great books written, but I saw that there was really nothing out there yet that really got into the nuts and bolts at any depth and length on how to do it and what's really going on on the rivers. So I just said, okay, you're going to be in my boat with me and we're going to take a trip down the river and I'm going to tell you what I know. And, and, and that's what I did and turned out to be pretty successful. And, and uh, it just warms my heart when I, you know, people tell me, I have a lot of wives tell me that, that, that yeah, on our nightstand is a dog-eared copy of a passenger steelhead on my husband's side and, and, uh, and some are on the wife's side too, which is pretty cool. Um, and on and on that goes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's an iconic book. It's a masterpiece. And uh, I, I, you and I have pretty similar uh, backgrounds uh, with Frank Amato. We started writing for Trout Sea Letter. We fly fisher, a fly fishing uh, journal. Uh, f- and um, then uh, he asked me to do Steelhead Dreams. I, that came out in 2001, and that was still the most successful book that I ever wrote. Yeah. And uh, it's still crazy. And then you came out with yours, and um, then I wrote an article, Tom, Tom's stuff has been, I mean, his, his work that he did with wild steelhead and Atlantic salmon magazine was just amazing. I mean, the guy is brilliant. The books that you've laid out, uh, he's laid out. And I had Topher Brown who did, uh, Atlantic salmon magic. We did a four hour podcast and, uh, that was crazy. Cause, uh, man, Topher, I thought I could talk, but Topher could just, <laughs> he, bur- he buries me in, in, in oblivion in a pile of dust. Um, but you know, the, those iconic books that came out, Trey, Trey Combs's book was amazing and, and the yep. detail he put into all the rivers and the personalities and the people. But what, what I think, um, I, you did with your book is you got into the nuts and bolts of everything and, and, and people, you know, we could write, but then we get ethereal and we don't really get down to earth. You put your boots in the, in the water and you put your, you put your line through your, through your guides and you got into that. And, that's the beauty of your book. And it was laid out beautifully. Uh, my book was sort of 
you know, of the Great Lakes didn't really have a lot of, right. of the whole of the history and the whole where did it all come from and the seasonality of it. And I was, I think, Michigan molded me when I moved, finally moved out here in 1990, 1992, 91. And uh, so, yeah, we are very similar in that background. And then I wrote an article for Tom's Magazine called, about the Atlantic salmon in Sault Ste. Marie, Hail Mary Atlantics. And, uh, but yeah, he, he did some amazing stuff. And, and, and the fact that he brought so many great icons of the West Coast into into his magazines and stuff and uh so tom if you're out there listening we're big fans and you've done a wonderful job but let's get into where this all started for you deck where where did that passion for steelhead and passion for fishing come about where who were your mentors was it was your parents was it your grandfather grandfather uncle was it somebody that just said you know when was that golden moment when deck said i'm going to devote the rest of my life to these bloody fish and that, that's like that calling to become a priest or a nun or a, or a sensei or a buddha it just happens and you just you're stuck for the rest of your life you're cursed yeah. when did yeah. that curse happen i uh um <clears throat> i kind of i can rem- can't remember not fishing and loving fishing but um i'm pretty sure well, i know my father introduced me when i was young we moved from the east coast to Northern California when I was like four years old. So little guy. And uh, we moved to a small town called Stony Ford in Northern California, just very rural in the coastal range. And uh, we went bass fishing and I just remember just being super enthralled with, with uh, fishing and bass and what, what it did to my dad and how excited he got and, and uh, loved nature right out of the gate. I remember the first time we saw a jackrabbit. I can still vividly remember. I wrote about this in the book. It's that big a deal. I just saw this wild rabbit, and I just thought it was the coolest thing on earth. And that just that literally set me off into the natural world. And then uh, my dad's passed away, and he never loved this story. But he would. I was. I was started noticing birds, and I said, "What kind of bird is that?" And he goes, "It's a seagull." And uh, a little, little while later, I'd see another bird that looked a little different than that one, but, a, you know, a sea bird nonetheless on a, on a reservoir. And I said, what's that, a seagull? <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, that bird looks very different than the last bird. So I took it upon myself and went and found a book and realized that I was looking at a Caspian tern and not a Western gull. So those sorts of things just got into me. And and uh, same with the fish. And uh we went all the time and, and I didn't realize my dad loved fishing, but uh, we were, we were struggling for money and uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> and when my dad got on his feet and started making some good income, I noticed we weren't fishing as much. And I realized later in life that, you know, my dad was, we were fishing a lot to provide food and right. yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm like, okay, <laughs> you love fishing, but now you're going to work. So I'm going fishing. So I just found they got, my parents got divorced. We moved all over various places in California and I always found places to fish always. I used to, we lived in Huntington beach for a little while and I'd set a trot line up before school on my bicycle in the Huntington Harbor and all day long in school. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get out of there and go find out and see what was on that trot line all day long at school. That's what I thought of. I'd race down there on my bicycle and pull it up and I'd got sharks and stingrays and all kinds of, you know, just a story for every one of those. I fished golf course lakes and I was in the boy scouts and we went to this 
Sierra Nevadas and all these places. And I always fished. Everything was fishing. Um, Crazy, possessed, just yeah. nuts. Just, I just nuts. Everywhere. Yeah, just, all the time. All the time. But, eat, eat, fish, sleep. Where yeah. am I going fishing next? Yep. It's crazy. Yeah, all the time. So then as far as the steelhead goes, I was in uh, fifth grade. And this kid who I knew liked to fish, but I never really, I didn't really know him much, but I heard him on Christmas break telling another kid that he was going fishing in Northern California. And I went up to him. I said, where are you going? And he said, we're going steelhead fishing in Northern California. And I was like, whoa, steelhead. What is that? Just that name. (laughs) It did. It just shot right through me. Must be pretty cool. And I'd seen those rivers before and they were big and dark and green and mysterious, mysterious. So I thought, man, that, that steelhead must be really cool. And I, and I said, what, what, what is it like? He goes, well, you don't catch many, but when we, when we, when you do, my dad gets really, really excited and they're really neat. And that's all I need. And uh, I never stopped thinking about that. He came back from vacation and they, he said they didn't get anything. And that would have been, you know, back in the 70s. So it, was, it didn't mean you were getting them back then either, as far, as far as I can remember. But I still, that, that, was, that was it. And I just had that with me all the time, everywhere I went. And I finally, uh, and right after I got out of high school, I had a chance to go to the Klamath River in Northern California. And the guys I was with fish, fish were fishing bait. They told me to use a a, a night crawler, and I literally I wrote about this in the book. I used to not tell anybody, but I literally went out on this gravel bar and pitched that thing out there, just gonna dead drift it. I don't know what I'm doing. It drifted a little bit, and boom, I'm in. I hooked a fish, and it's fighting, and it's fighting hard, and it's fighting great. And the guys ran over and they said, "You got a real one. You got a real one, deck." I'm like, what do you mean a real one? Well, I didn't know. We were going steelhead fishing. They were fishing for half pounders. Those little, you know, right. yeah, those little guys, little guys that go out for a couple of months and come back in. Well, I had an adult on, and we landed it. And I caught a steelhead on my very first cast ever oh, in my life. So you, that that's I, that was the sign was literally from the fish guys. Cast. Yeah, those yeah. sign from heaven that Dick Dex <laughs> steelhead. And yeah. uh yeah, so crawlers. So I was, you know, I was throwing spawn bags. Um, you know, that you know, we we have we're we're now we're at a different level. We consider ourselves a different level, but we all start out as most of us, and I actually the better fishermen usually start out as the bait drifters, as the spawn bag drifters, as the crawler fishermen. And uh so you 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 did that on the Klamath um yeah. that water. Uh so then the next move. So then as then after that, I mean, I, I just thought it was wonderful and it was great, but I had, you know, I was a young guy and life, life going on and I left college and I joined the, the Navy and uh, in the Navy, um, which was a wonderful time. I spent four years. I got uh, uh, orders to Naval Air Station, Whidbey Island, Washington, right in the heart of steelhead country. So I had landed. And uh, in that time, um, trying to figure out my local fishing, I found sea run cutthroats. I found salmon. I found some wonderful lakes with trout. And I was getting closer and closer to the steelhead. And then one day I walked into uh, to a little fishing store in Mount Vernon, Washington. And there's this guy, um, Charlie Gearhart. Old, I don't know, he was probably just around getting to turn 50 and super nice guy. And he said, do you ever do any steelhead and deck? And I, I hated to say no. My answer was, I, I think about it all the time. I read about it all the time. I'm super educated on it, but I haven't done it yet. And he goes, well, it's time you start. And uh, he kind of pointed me in the right direction. And 
and uh, I bought some gear and, and uh, <laughs> he sends me up to the Stillaguamish River and he says, if you go to this spot and you do this and you swing this purple marabou through there on all this gear he just sold me, you'll probably catch one. Oh, I believed him. I went up there and you know what? I had seen the Lonnie Waller video, so I knew a little bit about how to, how to do it, but I just, just, you know, keep in mind that I I'm, I'm, I'm not really explaining this enough that I was super enamored with this, this fish and hadn't done it yet. And I, and I read a lot of stuff. I used to go to libraries and just read, read, read all this steelhead literature. So I go up there and I start swinging. I found the spot. I'm waiting out. She said, it's a slot against this far bank. And I'm waiting out there, waiting out there, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm not seeing any good water, and I'm not seeing, I'm going, where is this? It's, it's, you know, I don't know about steelhead water, but I know about fish water. And I finally got close, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there it is. This slot was literally, you know, five feet wide, this deep green thing that was probably 20 feet long is all. And I said, well, that's got to be it. it. You know, any kind of fish would be in there. That's the spot. So I, started, I started swinging it, swinging it. Not sure what I was doing, but I know my fly was in there. And then I I kept going through it and I didn't know any better. So I probably was on my third or fourth time through this little tiny thing. And boom, my fly stops. Huh? What? My fly hadn't stopped. I got to know every piece of that water going through it four times already, a little slot. And then it took off. It just took off running and it came off. My heart was in my throat. I never felt anything like that before. It was crazy. Scott O'Donnell was my friend in the Navy. He, he wasn't really fly fishing yet. He just kind of starting, I think. Uh, he, we, we met each other in the Navy. And, uh, uh, yeah, and we had started a fishing relationship at that point. So I called him up that night. And I'm like, dude, I couldn't believe I, this happened to me. And crap, let it was unbelievable. And Charlie told me to go there and just explained it all to him. So the next day I was, I was working at Boeing at the time I was out of the Navy and I, I got off work and I'm at home and I got a knock on the door in the late afternoon. And it was Scott O'Donnell. He goes, dude, grab your shit. Let's go fishing. Let's go catch your steelhead. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, no, let's go, man. And uh, I said, well, I kind of got, he goes, bullshit. You're going, let's go. So I'm Okay. So we jumped in his rig. We ran down to the stilly. We got to that spot. And he said, what are you waiting for? Go catch your steelhead. I'm like, really? You going to let me go in there first? He goes, hell yeah. I went out there. I made forecast. Boom. I, it was just electrifying. This thing just crushed it. It wasn't one of those nice soft pull. It was sock. And this thing yeah. took running. And he's running. He's jumping. He's chrome. I can't believe it. I start screaming, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I've got this Minolta camera that I'd saved up. It was around my, I waited, was waiting with it around my um, my neck and uh, kind of hanging off my back. And I'm kind of running down river with this thing and I fall in. <laughs> so God bless I, it. I could Like literally the only time I've ever fallen in. in, in, in 50 years of being on the water is with my very first steelhead. And uh, which, why wouldn't it, you know? So my camera was ruined. I didn't care to get the fish in. I can't believe it. It's larger than life. It was probably seven pounds, but it was the most beautiful, crazy, beautiful, amazing thing I'd ever I'd only seen him in pictures. And, uh, and there, and there it was. And my, Oh, my camera doesn't work. Shoot. And I'm shaking like a leaf. And Scott goes, I got this little camera. And it was a little, old little one ten Instamatic. Yeah. And he pulls it out and says, 
I fell in myself last week, so I don't know if it's going to work. Anyway, <laughs> we'll try it. And he goes, click, one click. That's all we got out of it. <laughs> oh, my God. And you got it? And did you go to- but his finger was in front of the lens. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so it's a soft, grainy picture, and I got it. And, and then after that, a few minutes later, after we calmed down, and I got another one. And uh, wow, that was that was it. So there's my first steelhead story. And and yeah, at that point, I mean, it was dangerously on my brain. I it, there was it was bad. It, I was that was obsessed. the knighthood. That was the knighthood. That's when the when the queen put the knife on your shoulder and said, yeah. "You will now be a steelhead sensei." And, yeah. And that's that was it. And it's 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 like a power. It's like a yeah. extraterrestrial power that empowers you. That uh, it's all I want to do now. And and so you got that experience. Yeah. When did you devote your life to becoming yeah. a guide? And and how did that process happen? You were at Boeing, right? So after that, and then obviously even before that night, I mean, I was obsessed with fishing and did all kinds of stuff. And and uh, I joined the local fly fishing club for dog fly fishers. Uh, affiliates of the FFF and a bunch of cool old guys. And they would come in. We called them the Fidago fly wishers because we go to those meetings. We me, Scott and another kid named Brad Adrian from the Navy. We're all young 20 somethings and we're fishing our butts off. And we go to those meetings and these old guys would just talk about fishing. (laughs) Then they started living vicariously through us. You know, their one time they went fishing was their, the club outing or whatever. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're great people, but we were just, hard at it and and they they would live in vicariously through us and listening to us and listening to me and finally one day they asked me to do the meeting to give the meeting because wow. i had this yeah so I'm like, wow me i'm gonna give the meeting okay i'll be the guest speaker so i did it and it was good and it was fun and i really enjoyed again the feedback from that and uh, all the questions they asked me afterwards and how attentive they were and and uh, attentive and on and on it goes from there. And so I'm fishing, 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 and I'm learning more about steelheading and I'm catching more and I'm going crazy. And a fly shop calls me and says, Hey, uh, w- would you mind guiding this guy for a day? And I said, well, I'm not a guide. I don't have a guide license. I don't guide. Hey. And they said, well, we most guides need- today aren't guides. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they said that such and such can't do it and such and such can't do it. And we called this guy and all the guys were booked up around the area. So they, they had this one guy just wanted one day came in and, I, and they said, just, just take him out, man. You'll have a good day and you'll make, make a little money. And so I took him out and, uh, he, he, uh, he got two. Oh my God. That's <laughs> two, a pretty good day for your first day. Wild steelhead that day. It was in early May on the North Fork of the Stiliguamish. Two chrome wild steelhead. And I then I was even beside myself. I'm like, okay, I'm cut out for this because I enjoyed him catching those fish probably even more than I did my own. Yep. You know, at that time, you have your, your, your budding, budding steelhead life, you know, you want to be talking about selfish, yeah. you know, give me that rod. But yeah. I was just ecstatic that he caught these fish. So now I'm jumping around, I'm telling everybody who, anybody who listened that I did this thing and I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to find my way. And, and, uh, I said, I got to do this. I have to be a guide. I have to take people fishing. I, I, I can't not be on the river. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. the way my mind works, like, okay. I need to, I need to find a way to do this. So I did my research and found out that I needed to go to Alaska. 
Yeah. I need to spend a summer in Alaska and learn as much as I could about all the fishing up there and relate it to steelhead fishing. But more importantly, you had access to all this clientele. Right. And uh, I went up there and I guess my, my uh, wearing it on my sleeve and my, my love and passion for it was infectious. Uh, Cause I had, after my first season up there, I had a whole bunch of people that were going to come down and fish with me on the Skagit river. So I put together this little season and, uh, and I told the, the, the kind of the, the big wig guide on the Skagit at that time, John Farrar, that I was going to be doing this. John I'm, Farrar. What a, what an iconic name that guy was. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, he didn't seem to mind. He, <laughs> it was just him and me at that time. And Mike Kinney was around, but he was mostly on the Stilliguamish and I was on the Skagit and, uh, and, uh, John started sending me some people to guide. And wow, what an honor that was. I mean, he believed in me that much. And, and, uh, I remember going out and, and uh, having some fun with some of those folks that that he sent my way, and and then that kind of got the things rolling. And I said, well, I can do this. I'm, I'm getting clientele. And then uh, so I did my first kind of catch and release season on the Skagit, and that just you know the people caught fish and had fun and kept coming back. And I went back to Alaska and got more people. And then I was asked to go work on the Grand Ron River at Little Creek Lodge. Uh, they were looking for somebody and George Cook, who was a friend and a rep for Sage at the time, he still is. He told this guy, he goes, man, give this deck Hogan a call. And I went there and man, that's where I started filling the gaps and catching fish on dry lines. And Bill McMillan was there and Jesus. Teaching so that's the, all the big names. I mean, uh, you know, you know, uh, McMillan, you know, I, I fell in love with his book, dry fly, dry line, steelheading. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm actually I'm going to do a podcast. I hopefully with his with John and John, uh, yeah, I, awesome. I talked to Bill McMillan um, about two weeks ago, and he's got a really bad hearing problem now, and he's really hooked up. Uh, oh. He couldn't possibly do any podcast because his hearing is is pretty critical. And uh, mm-hmm. we had a nice chat, and he he wrote a nice thing for my selectivity book, and um, yeah. So these people, the icons, who are who are? I mean, who are any other of these icons in the West Coast? You had so many of these these people. You had Waller, you had Combs, you had, you know, all these guys. McMillan. Um, how did all these guys shape your life? And what kind of books were you digging into back then and stuff? So obviously, the you know the the traded that the big book and. 1990 and we were the young dudes on the river around when he came to the river to to write that book and do his interviews with the various folks that he did there which was not us when i say us me scott and ed ward because we were just young dudes and out there fishing and uh we since came to 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 know trey and and whatnot but in in any event he was there doing that but I, i we didn't seek these people out i was just fishing around them you know we were the new guys there wasn't a whole bunch of people getting into the sport back then. And they were just there. I mean, I'd be I'd be fishing a run and 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 out with Harry Lemire and Bob Strobel would 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 pop out of the out of the forest and come in and and wow. I didn't know who they were. They were just these cool older guys that fished well and I, you know, come to find out that these are experienced guys. I didn't know them as like, oh, the great Harry Lemire. I knew him as, hey, here's a guy who's been doing it a long time. Um, what's your name? Harry? Hi, I'm Deck. And uh 
Yeah, you, cool. you this is his way. Oh, you're the guy in, in in Trey's first book that I love to read that he was published in '74 when Trey was just a twenty-something whippersnapper. Yeah, that was the one he did with Amato back then. Yeah, still had fly fishing and flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and I I memorized everything in that fly times the fly section the the all the patterns all the history I loved all that. Right. All the pictures of those guys. And I'm seeing pictures of Harry Lemire and Bob Strobel and Alec Jackson on the gravel bars of the Stiligwamish and in, in the book and going, well, these are the guys that are right here right now with me. And they were, they were great. They were open arms. They would, you know, they wouldn't, you know, tackle you down and tell you things, but they, if you asked them and you hung around them, you could, you could learn some things. And I certainly knew when to shut up and listen and, uh, you know, they, they didn't care what I was doing. And I realized that at that time, and, uh, it was better for me just to listen to them and observe. And, and I did, and I learned a lot. So, and Harry was, you know, w- went on to be a, a friend and we fished together a bit and was always around him. And, and he taught me a lot. He was definitely a, a, a mentor of mine in ways, and he may not have known it. Um, but what I really got from Harry was that this steelhead was really this predatory animal. Right. And uh, and his approach was, you know, he's the one that really let me know that you don't need to get deep to get these things. It's more about the speed of the swing than the depth. And it just right. gave me a cool feeling and a confidence. And then, like I said, Bill McMillan, he was a huge influence because, again, I just walked into it. Uh, this lodge I worked at had Bill come in and do his dryline steelhead schools. And I, as the guide, would take my guests to Bill's school in the morning. And I would just hang out on the gravel bar and watch them, the, the, listen to Bill and watch my guys learn. And then after that, we would go out in the afternoon, just me and my clients, and, uh, and, and put to practice what Bill taught us that day. Uh, and, of course, I saw that over and over and over and, you know, was able to ask questions off the side to Bill. And Bill and I fished together. And, and uh, he actually wrote the foreword to my passion for steelhead, which was a yeah. huge um, yeah, that was huge. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. And uh, uh, so he was a huge mentor. And then I mentioned, uh, or, or you know, with if you want to know some of the cool things that that Bill taught me was was for instance, one day we went fishing, and uh, uh, we're using our our little moose turd flies, our surface flies on the Grand Rond. And I was always really, I really thought I always had to have that fly fishing just perfect all the way across, and not whip or not crack or not whip. Well, current's current. And if you have conflicting currents, there's certain things you can do to manipulate. Sure. Sometimes that little fly, if especially in a pocket, it catches and it'll race downstream. And then, you know what I mean? It'll get in the pocket, swing up yeah. in that soft water, shoot down the seam and then back out. And I was kind of embarrassed because Bill was watching me fish and I said, oh, I'm trying, I, I, I hate it when it does that. And I don't feel like there's anything I can do. And he looks at me and goes, why would you want to change that? And he looked at me and goes, they love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, really? And sure enough, just not long after that, Bam. I have that, that no, that my fly yeah, is racing downstream in that little current seam, you know, flipped around, zoom, and the steel had chased it downstream and grabbed it. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. I've been working way too hard. <laughs> that's something. That's something that you know. That that's it's it's like very similar with Atlantic salmon. They're 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 creatures that want something that they can't have, and it's something's it's stuff like that where you you can't 
explain it, um, why yeah. why it happened that way, and then we're going to get into why Steele had to take a fly and, yeah. and the bite. Um, so quickly before we take a break, because we got a lot of breaks to cover and we got a lot yeah. of stuff to cover. Um, uh, how, how, the the Skagit, the Sock, the Stole Duck, and the Glory Days. Your your affiliations with Edward. You spent a lot of time with Edward. You guys were really tight and yeah. and. Um, what was it like in those days to to have those rivers to fishing at their at their peak? How do, nice. how do you think about that often? Do, is it like is it the daily thought or the dreams that come through with those those glory days? Yeah, it is. Um, and I was we, we were well aware of it at the time. Um, uh, you know, we didn't know it was going to change so much, but during that time, um, well aware. And I mentioned the the Lonnie Waller video and research I'd done and why well, it seemed like British Columbia was the place to go. And, and man, those big fish and that amazing water and aggressive fish and guy, it looks like they catch a lot of them. And then when I started really fishing and understanding the, the game uh, on the sock, the Skagit, the Stillaguamish and the Skycomish, uh, we'll talk about the Solduck in a minute, but all those Puget Sound rivers, I'm like, bc why would i go to bc i i I, within an hour of radius of my home i have all these rivers and they're amazing and the big chrome wild fish and snow-capped mountains everything um well aware of it and fishing you know steelheading steelheading it's always you know as you know it's it's tough you get you you you're 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 on the hunt you're covering the water you're fishing the water looking for that fish that's going to take our swung fly the difference between now and then is we usually found it. It was more often that when I went out to fish for the day, I, I, I pretty much knew that at some point I was going to connect. Whether it was summer, spring, winter, fall, whatever, I was going to connect. And multiple fish days was, was common. And it wasn't just going out and, oh, yeah, I got one. It was I got one and Ed got two. And we ran into Scott and he got one. And then, you know, we said, Hey, Harry, how'd you do this? And he goes, well, I got two this morning and everybody got them. And if I was out on the river and I had two fish, I wasn't going, ha ha. Wonder how those guys are doing. I already knew. Yeah. yeah. Already knew. There was fish spread throughout the system. And when the bite was on and conditions were right, we all caught them. Yeah. Uh, used to step into pieces of water with my heart pounding because I knew it was going to happen. Just heart in my throat thumping along. I'm coming to the bucket. Sure enough. Yeah. Now you do go through a lot of empty buckets. Um, And then as far as the Soldat goes in the Olympic Peninsula, I'll tell you that during those days, all those, the, all those uh, S rivers, they call them the Puget Sound rivers, the Northern Puget Sound, Sox, Skagit, Stilly, Skykomish. Um, those things all have fabulous, fabulous fly water. I think better than the peninsula overall. And yeah. we didn't go to the peninsula much. The peninsula rivers, we all knew, we knew the names of them. I'd been to them a time or two, but we didn't run over to the peninsula. Why would the Olympic Peninsula, you know, namely the, yeah. you know, yeah. the Soltuck, the Ho, the Bogashiel, the Kalawa. Um, we didn't run over there. We had all that good stuff right at home. And the few times that we did go over there, it would blow out or we'd have to be, you know, finding water because we're not familiar with it and going, wonder what's happening at home. And we'd find out that, you know, fishing was great at home. So those rivers, we talk about them now and, and they're, you know, people ask me all the time, who do you fish the hoe? Do you love the hoe? Well, that used to never happen before all the closures on the Puget Sound rivers because we didn't go there. 
it, there was a whole separate crowd that was out on the peninsula. Now, because of all the closures, the peninsula is very popular. So I, I, I fished all those rivers a time or two, and that's it. My home water, Skagit, Sox, Stilly, Skycomish. Yep. Yep. Amazing times. And we had those days in the Great Lakes, too. Uh, 1999, 2000, 2001, back in uh, when Steel of Dreams came out. I mean, it yep. was crazy. You could go out in my front pool in front of our lodge here, and I could get two fish in the mid-teens uh, in a half hour and say, I'm going to go out and catch a couple big steel, and I'll be back for dinner. Those days are long gone. We, we, we You know what? We've, we fished two unicorns and scraps today, and um, it's it's kind of sad, but hopefully things are changing, and – we're starting to learn from your guys' past. Um, wild steelhead are important. Um, preserving fish, we've gotten finally down to a one-fish limit in the springtime. But you're still allowed to kill three wild steelhead a day here in Michigan, yeah. which is so archaic. And and a lot of people, including myself, are doing a lot of things to help change that. But it's a struggle. But anyways, we have to take a break now. Um, and we're going to finally, folks, get into the nitty gritty of steelhead fishing about presentation and steelhead behavior and all that stuff. We got so much to cover. But thanks for um, for that great background deck. That was wonderful to know. And uh, we are a product of, of our mentors and a product of our environment that we're brought up in. And I think one thing, especially for steelhead guides, is the amount of positive attitude you have to have. I mean, there's days and days you get skunked. At least I do. I'm probably not that good. But the bottom line is to keep people's faith up, to keep their enthusiasm up, to to make a few jokes, to, to let you could see when your client's starting to drift away and things aren't happening and you're into the seventh, eighth hour of nothing going on. And then it's that you're only one cast away from redemption. It's that magic yeah. moment when everything happens and the whole entire day, the whole entire week is made. Yeah. So you have to be a wizard. You have to be a, a karma man. You have to be a Buddha. You have to be um, that sensei that injects that enthusiasm because when you don't, and just by talking to you, uh, Deck, in, in the times we've talked, you have that karma, that magic, and that's the difference between really being a guide, mentor, sensei. Uh, you, you are, you are, you are leading a spiritual journey, and a steelhead is not an easy fish to catch. There's time no. where they're so stupid and they're so easy that everybody's catching them. But most of the time, when you're swinging flies, we're not, we're not throwing eggs on and, and hooks. We're not. We're not bobber fishing. We're not uh, center pitting. We're, we're trying to get a fish to take a fly that they really, all practical purposes should not. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to take a break. And we got questions from people that uh, uh, typed in and wanted to get some answers. So we are going to take a break and get into the nitty gritty with Dak Hogan and a passion for steelhead. Stay tuned. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish. 
uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA-made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique-made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a reel company. Uh, I've known them for many decades, and I had my first Orvis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to to buy one. Um, They have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, since the the days fly fishing really started in this country. And... um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity. And lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say, we're going to be taken seriously in this market. And they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander. And I took it to uh, to Iceland. And I was just, just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me. The Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimer's. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the the grips, the 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 whole the whole package is just simply amazing. And um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market. And you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're going to purchase the rods. They're 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 very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis and ask for the Orvis mission. Give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Welcome back. We are talking the passion for steelhead um, with the famous Deck Hogan, uh, the infamous Deck Hogan that is telling us never to mend, you mindless menders. Um, Just kidding. There are places and we're going to talk about that. But uh, Deck, you were just saying about guiding. You were just mentioning a few words before we were taking a break about guiding. What was that? 
Yeah, just for fun. You talked about, you know, just taking people out on the river and whether the fishing is good or not, right? The difference between a good day and a great day is one cast, right? Exactly. A fishless day is, is literally one cast. Now, certainly there's a lot more to it than that. And it's a process that builds up to that, to that, uh, the fish taking the fly, but literally one cast can make the difference of the day. So you do have to do a lot of things. And I just, I'm, I'm actually writing this book of essays, uh, hopefully that'll come, but I just want to read this one quick thing just kind of for fun for your listeners that, that I feel strongly about. This is the story I wrote just not too long ago. So real quick, one paragraph. Much of what we do as steelhead anglers, including the tackle and flies we use, can be directly credited to guides. It stands to reason. Fishing is mostly all we think about. It's our obsession to begin with, but we have put ourselves in a position to take anglers of all skill levels, including none at all, and present them with viable opportunity, not a simple task. Innovation, problem-solving, a keen sense of people skills are just a few of the mandatory prerequisites to being a successful steelhead guide. Add boatman, hydrologist, meteorologist, emergency medical technician, chef, psychologist, public relations specialist, naturalist, accountant, instructor, cheerleader, one tough and hearty mother, and we are just getting started as to the many hats a guide must wear in the course of just a single day. I didn't even mention what we must know about the pursuit of our quarry. So, Amen. That's beautiful. And that's so true. I mean, you have to be a jack of all trades. Um, and, you know, uh, it's really interesting. You know, you've been guiding for 30 years. I've been 40 years, 30 years. I've been guiding for yeah. 30 years. I, I can't yeah. remember. But you know what? You're going to be yourself. And as you get older, you're going to be who you are. And not everybody's going to like you. And some people want a quieter guy. Some people like a guy that talks a lot. Some people sure. are just drones and they want yep. another drone to sit there in the boat or walk with them. Um, it is what it is. But one thing that you will always find with a passionate steelhead guide is they will take you to the next level. They will push you when you're falling apart. They will make, they will check hooks, sharpness. They'll check knots. They'll look at everything. They'll try everything. They're empiricists. They're constantly, they're, when you're ready to fall apart as a client, they're always bringing you up and they're always looking at, we didn't try this or we didn't do this or we, you know, and they're, this eternal optimism is something you cannot teach in people. Right. I mean, look at a lot of guides today, and I'm not going to be the old dude bitching about the young dude crap, but I'm just going to say that nothing is easy, and you have to pay your dues, and, and paying your dues is something yeah. that our generation was brought up in. We didn't talk as much. We weren't put on pedestals as youth. Youth were meant to be seen but not heard from. You respected yeah. elders. You sought knowledge from elders. Today, that's all gone with social media and instant gratification and YouTube stars and everything. Everybody's a rock star. Nobody is a rock star. And and what you're going to find on which I'm devoting all my Hollow Water podcast to. I don't want rock stars. I want people that have actually put their heart, soul, and passion into what we're doing. And that's that's where the Zen and karma of this sport is all about. Sure. If you want to do that, become an athlete. Be, go go do something else. But this was always about the passion. It was the stuff you learned in barbershops, the stuff you learned by hanging out on the river with the guys and you just sat there and watched and listened. And, and, and that's what this whole sport is about. So enough of the preaching. Um, we have a question here, um, about from, um, Garrett from Bedford, New York. And he is, says, I saw you once 
On the Salmon River Spayclave years ago, Doc, what were your first impressions of Great Lake Steelheading? How do you um, how do you few are how do our few Chambers Creek Steelhead uh, compare with your fish? Um, they come from Washington State. Uh, our fish in the Great Lakes to the difficulty, savviness, aggressiveness, and fight, etc. Uh, they seem to be more sluggish than West Coast fish, or maybe not. Could that be because of cold water temps? Um, tell us a little bit about your first impressions of the Great Lakes. Weekend. Okay, well, thanks for that question, Garrett. I, I, you know, that that's a that's a pretty pretty broad thing to answer. Um, so that must have been the Salmon River in New York. I was right. there and did yep. so, Yeah. Uh, um, I, I I fished several rivers in the Great Lakes area. I've caught some fish. I've seen some fish caught. Um, and when I'm so, you know, that's my limited experience, but when I'm there and I'm in the water and I'm wading up to my thighs or my knees or my waist, wherever I am in the run or my ankles, and I launch that fly out there and I swing across that beautiful water, I, I don't think about where I am, I, you know, geographically. I'm, I'm swinging flies for steelhead. Um, having hooked some and seeing them hooked, yeah, they're hot, beautiful, chrome bright fish. Um, were they as hot as some things I've seen on the West Coast? No. Is it conditions? Is it the fact that our steelhead are being chased by sea lions and orcas? I don't. I don't know, but um, I think they're wonderful fish, and they do go to the lake as their ocean, which is a freshwater lake with, uh, you know, like I said, not the same kind of predation. Um, I guess what I'm saying is it's fun. I, I enjoyed my time there and I love the fish I caught. I, I'll be honest with you though. I, I, I never felt like I was getting my butt kicked and had my hands full the way I have in the West coast, but I've caught, you know, I've caught tens of hundreds and well over a thousand steelhead in the West coast. And I've caught a handful on the, in the great lakes. I do know that the, some of the water I've seen is not as conducive to swinging um, uh, you know, uh, on the rivers that I fish. And then I did see some rivers that the swing water was great uh, on the Great Lakes. And I think that's the difference is, is those sorts of conditions as regards to the steelhead taking your fly on the swung, the swung fly. You know, you mentioned the gravel earlier or that you didn't say gravel. I, I was going to say it, the spawning beds. I remember when I was there in my travels, um, the, one of the guys told me, he goes, yeah, if you're going to go fishing, go down such and such. There's some really good gravel there. I'm like, what does that mean? Gravel? I want rocks. I'm like, well, maybe that's the structure. Well, I found out that the gravel was spawning beds. Right. That was their term for that. I'm like, well, I'm not fishing gravel. <laughs> I have no interest in harassing a steelhead once it's, you know, in the throes of spawning. Um, but to answer Garrett's question, yeah, I, I, you know, we have cold water temps on the West Coast as well, and and that can make them a little more more sluggish. But at the same time, I've been in some pretty dang cold water and hooks a chrome bright wild steelhead, um, you know, ten miles from the ocean, and it's just ass kicking, hard fighting. They're they're they're, they're different. They are, and I'm not going to be one of those guys that say those aren't steelhead, even though we affectionately call your steelhead tinheads. 
Um, <laughs> pygmy rainbows, migratory pygmy rainbows. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's that that age old thing has been going on forever. When yeah, you know, I when I, one and, of the things when I wrote Steelhead Dreams is like those ain't goddamn Steelhead. How could you dare? How could you dare call them Steelhead? You know, Steelhead has to touch the salt, and that battle still goes on. You got the purism stuff, um, but cold water. Yeah. I think cold water is a big one of the big game changers in our fishery that that really affects the way we fish wouldn't you think absolutely sure 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 you know um from my observation yeah that the cold water and the type of water you know i don't there's a lot of those rivers over there that that aren't great swing water right i mean there's right reason why dead drifting things and you know, it's just not good swing water. And the same on the West Coast. There's plenty of rivers that are not that have steelhead that are not good swing water. And those are the ones that we don't talk about as steelhead fly swingers. You know, every every river that we've mentioned so far that on the West Coast by name has all one thing in common. And that is it has good fly water. Obviously, it has steelhead, but it has good fly water. Yeah. Um, the sole duck. It really doesn't have great fly water. There's a couple good pools down in the lower end. The salt duck was made famous because that's where Sid Glasso hung out, and he fished those one or two pools down low uh, on the river. But as as a whole, that's not a great river. But you go to the Sox, Gadget, Skykomish, it's mile after mile after mile after mile of just one great piece of fly water after another. Yeah, uh, that's where you wrote your. That's where you wrote your stuff, and we're going to talk about presentation, and, and and that was the that was the foundation. That was the that was the uh, the Roman Empire. That was the grease of your passion for steelhead. Uh, yeah. Is is the, that water, and you nitpicked it, and we're going to talk about that. But let's get into the, about the steelhead and the be a bite, and then we're going to get into uh, into reading water. Then we're going to get into why steelhead eat flies. We got a lot to cover, but let's let's first break it down between summer run and winter run fish. What you know that's a big thing we just treat steelhead as just steelhead steelhead but there's two separate different behaviors in these fish there's two separate ways they run rivers uh what's your you know what's your take on on winter fish versus summer fish how they take the fly you know your your whole view on that whole scenario well again you're 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 back into conditions and certainly winter fish come into the river and spawn the the spring of their arrival right so fish comes in between december and february in the winter time as a winter run steelhead it immediately settles into spawning you know soon as conditions are are, are ripe uh which is sometime april may june um and the rivers are usually shorter uh, or can be shorter there's certainly some short summer run rivers and then the summer runs come in uh in the in the late spring and into the summer and throughout. And they usually go to rivers where they don't usually, they do go to rivers that have some kind of deep water refuge through the, the warm days of summer where there's deep, a deep Canyon, some deep pools where they can hang out and stay in the coolest water possible until they spawn the following spring. Right. So that's a big difference. Winter runs come in, they get the job done. They go back out summer runs winter over and then spawn in the spring. So they've come in with much higher fat stores to carry them through, even though there is some limited feeding. Of course, they don't have to feed winter runs or summer runs. It's not, they don't have to do it. They're predisposed not to, to have to feed to stay, to stay sustained. It's those great fat stores. As far as the approach goes, um, there's some differing opinions 
Um, I found uh, that, you know, we talk about going low and slow in the winter time and slowing down. That's because the water's cold. If you, if you right. go with you, if you fish for summer run and the water is in the low forties or high thirties, they're going to behave just like winter runs. As far as, as regards to our approach to them, they're going to be in the slower water and you're going to have to get closer to them. And I don't mean dredge the bottom, but you're going to have to really slow things down as the water warms up. Those summer runs still had become more active. People say they become trouty. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, I, I know, I, I know you can use drab, colored flies and fish near the surface does that make them trouty because you can do the same thing for winter runs given conditions is it right so i i don't have a great separation i have separation in that winter runs are usually chunkier bodied fish uh because they're egg develop you know their their reproductive development and they're just big stout fish but you know you can say the same thing for summer run fish up in northern northern british columbia um, they're pretty stout because they have so much fat stores and they're big wild fish. So there you go. But we, we do associate summer run fishing with dry lines and being closer to the surface or right on the surface and winter run fishing with getting deep simply because of conditions. Yeah. Like Bill, like Bill McMillan did his stuff on the upper Washougal when yep. that's a summer run fishery. That's your Skamania, Washington. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I guy for summer runs in the Great Lakes on the St. Joe, and I get him to take hoppers occasionally and sure. stuff on the waking on the surface. And this fall, in in I got my fish on my river here, the Muskegon, to take, you know, to, to take uh, October caddis on the surface when there were caddis hatches. So, you know, it's it's time of year. It's basically water temperature. It's it's time of the run. Um, it, it's it's what phase of their gravidness in the run. Uh, let's talk about wild fish and hatchery fish. Now you have a combination of both in the West Coast now with your wild fish down so much. You know, hatchery fish are still prominent on some fisheries. What is your take on the fish? How do you see the grab happening? Do you, t- you view wild fish as, as being more... Um, you know, aggressive to the fly. Are they both the same? You know, the Great Lakes has a ton of hatchery fish, so we're fishing to hatchery mutts. Do they, you know, they're still chrome fish. They're still beautiful. But, you know, where where does your value lie in in wild fish and how important they are? What, what do you think is that differential well, moment that separates the two? So, yeah. So, well, you know, obviously they're, they're – they're important and they're detrimental just for obvious reasons. They're, they're, they're the wild fish. They are the steelhead. Um, I don't want to get too much into, you know, the hatchery versus steelhead as far as uh, our hatchery bad for the system, uh, all that stuff. Let's talk about, I think what you're asking me is comparing the two in in a fishing situation. Right. Uh, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Having compiled enough data that I can speak freely and confidently and tell you that, wild steelhead if, if if i'm hooked up or one of my clients is hooked up on on a on a river that has both i can 90 percent of the time tell you at some point in the fight this is going to be a wild one we're gonna we're gonna you're gonna land this fish or get close enough to know that this is a wild one how do i know that because it's got the extra oomph, the extra speed the extra fight not giving up as easily as a hatchery fish every now and then you'll get a super hot hatchery fish. Uh, but n- like 90% of the time when I call it, I'm correct. Um, you can get an odd 
dead wild fish too. He's been traveling far. He just got caught a while ago. Who knows? But overall, they fight better and they are more aggressive uh, overall. Again, I've compiled that data. And I say that because people say, well, I've caught plenty of hatchery fish. I grabbed the fly super aggressive. Well, I have too. And I've also been in situations to watch from above and the fish that comes up and the angler doesn't even know it. The fish that just comes materializes out of nowhere and does a little tiny nip on the fly, just a little half, half, little half-hearted nip and goes back down. It's always, always a hatchery fish. The ones that, and you never can get them back. <laughs> That's what they gave you. The wild fish that comes to the fly He's either going to make a full committal or he's going to make a super quick, aggressive pass at it usually. And uh, you can usually get that fish back. It's most of the time when I, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm on water that has both the fish that I get as a comeback that is, is a, is a wild fish. So they, they, they're more aggressive. That's a, that's a good point. That's a really good point, you know, and uh, it's basically because they're natal imprinting to, to food forms and predators from the moment they're born out of the gravel. I mean, they're constantly looking up above them because they're yeah. always looking for things that are going to take them out, like eagles and ospreys and, and hawks, yeah. and and they're imprinting different food forms. They experiment. Uh, hatchery fish are sort of like they're lost souls. They're kind of confused fish. They do have the ten. I mean, they they they, they look like wild fish when they're you know i mean they're chrome out of the out of the ocean or the lakes but in the fact that you know their their whole demeanor and personalities and i I talk you know anthropomorphism personalities but they do have personalities and those are genetic behavior traits and uh a wild fish you could know sometimes right off the bat that's a hot wild fish bingo and sometimes you're, you're 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 confused because you catch a hatchery fish and you said, oh, man, I could have swore. So a steelhead is a steelhead yeah. is a steelhead, period. Sure. Uh, you know, if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it's a probably a duck. Um, there, but you, there is that they're added touch. Um, do you have any, like, superstitions about when you're swinging flies, anything, any crazy things? I talked to Tom Larimer in one of our podcasts, and, you know, we talked about bananas and boats and, and garlic <laughs> and, and pants and wearing the same shirt. What are your – you got to have some superstitions. Uh, Deck Kogan yeah, superstitions. You know what? I, I don't. I I I, uh, I don't have many superstitions that way. I, I really don't. I, I can tell you. I can talk about bananas, and I'm in. I'm in. I'm of the um, of the bring on the banana. We we uh, Edward, which we mentioned. Uh, you know, he was a great. It still is, but we we were constant fishing companions for years. In fact, him and Scott O'Donnell lived in my home. Uh, under my roof for a couple of years um, while we had a lot of way too much fun. Um, but Ed always ate bananas and didn't really know anything about the, the negative banana juju from the old merchant boats and whatever that story is. But uh, um, we had bananas in the boat all the time. And then we started realizing that these bananas were supposed to be a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but we caught plenty of steelhead. It never jinxed us. So I call it our fish steelhead catching power food. Um, as far as steel, uh, uh, superstition for me, you know, I've had a few favorite hats, but if I, if I lost my lucky hat, I was good just to make, put another one on. Cause I just, my superstition is that uh, I got to keep believing the second I stop believing all is lost. So that that's about it. No, no fun stories. I changed my underwear. Amen. and Amen. Amen on that. Um, so, you know, let's let's talk about the whole Skagit movement and when it started. And, um, you know, steelhead have kind of slow attack speeds. And if you look at other predator fish out there, actually Atlantic salmon 
are have higher attack speeds and Atlantic salmon are actually clocked at like 25 miles an hour and in some of their attack speeds where steelhead have very slow attack speeds sort of like brown trout like big blazy brown trout and and I was I was you know I, I wrote in my one of my books there are like five to seven miles an hour attack speeds so they're kind of yeah. kind of dogged cautious old dogs that don't come in and take the bone right away but just when you're not looking it snarls it right out of you and and that whole demeanor that that doggy bullish i think bullish demeanor to describe winter steelhead and um they're not quick running mutts like like summer steelhead they don't run in packs they run in little individual groups and uh that spurred that whole skagit movement and with edward you mentioned O'Donnell and McCune and and those people. Um, you were at the founding level of that. And how did you guys put that mentality together? That shit, we're not catching fish with, uh, you know, dry line steel heading tactics here just by using the weight of the hook like McMillan does for his summer fish that are usually in shallow water getting oxygen because it's too hot out. So they're looking at flies in a different way. They're seeing more flies hatching in their, you know, upper headwater environments like the Washugal. When that when that Skagit came down, there was a, there was an epiphany for you guys to, hey, we got to change the way we're fishing. We got our lines ain't cutting it anymore. This shit's not happening. You know the old British double tapers are just not working right now. How did that whole movement start in your relationship with Edward? Take us through that. So, yeah. So <clears throat> just again, this my you know how I lived it, and and I was certainly there when things got started, and and we we're on the Skagit, which is not the Washougal, <laughs> right? It's you know, this, all those rivers are big, big water. And even though this, the steelhead water, the fly water is, you know, wonderful three to six feet deep and a nice walking speed, there's still big, heavy runs. And those fish, uh, you need to get a little closer to them, right? They're winter fish and they're, they're down amongst the stones and you need to put the fly in relative proximity to them. They're not going to move quite as far for, for it. Um, so you need to get down. And they have shown uh, over the years that they like larger flies. They, they respond well to large flies. Will they take small flies? Absolutely. But they respond well to large flies. And it really is fitting if you look at the big picture and it's, it's cool and cold not necessarily freezing cold but it's cool and the water temps are cooler um and it's big and it's green and uh, you know a substantial flies is fitting so this whole skagit movement you know it really started with single-handed rods with people fishing the skagit and realizing that we needed to get down and and even the people before me they use sink tips and they use larger flies. Al Knutson's flies back in the 1950, he had a white marabou that was that long for up there. Um, even West, you know, uh, Ralph Wall's flies were not particularly big, but they were still a lot bigger than summer run flies. And on it goes. But those guys use sink tips. And uh, in, in early days, they even coated their silk lines in lead, lead paint, right, to get them to yeah. sink. Why? Because they just they needed to get down. So the whole, you know, I love the, the you say Skagit movement and I get it. But what happened was we were, we, back when we were making our own sink tips because it was easier to, to build a sink tip that shot a shooting sink tip than one out of the box. So we would 
take a running line and splice in a chunk of floating line. Like um, for our eight weight rods, we'd use the middle, the heaviest section from a nine weight. Well, I, we didn't have, I, I wasn't using scales. Nobody was using scales. We would just chunk, get a nice 10 foot chunk and splice it in there and, and, and add our sink tip to it. So you have that floating a heavier floating section than you would out of the box and you could flip it around lay it on the water and shoot it a mile and then you had that 10 feet of heavy floating that you could manipulate and do your little mending and steering if you needed to um and we will talk about mending i know it's coming um or lack thereof and uh and swing the fly so what do you have what did we make what did we effectively make for our our single-handed rods so nine and a half foot eight weights a thin running line a fat suck section of belly and then a sink tip we were making skagit lines before there was skagit lines it was just right. the, it was just something out of necessity that was developed. So when we were in it, when I say we, I'm talking me, Ed, Scott, uh, um, and then even the older guys, you know, Harry Lemire and Bob Strobel and the, those guys from Sage, they, they uh, were introduced to the two-hander and which had been around a long time in Europe, obviously, right? But we we're going to apply it to our steelheading uh, in the Northwest. Um, we needed a line for it. So all we really did was modify our single-handed lines to match our two-handed rods. It's the same thing. So now instead of a nine-weight belly section, we were using a belly section from a 12-weight chunk of double taper line that we spliced in, right? So you have a big, fat, large diameter belly section to a running line to a sink tip we just called it our line. We didn't realize that one day it was going to be called a Skagit line. And uh, we kind of did because we joked around about it because it was this, as the two-handed rod was gaining popularity, there was some guys who did look to the European traditions and say, wow, okay, if we're going to call this thing spay casting, they, God, they use 16-foot rods and double taper lines back there and big, long stuff. So that's what I'm going to do because I'm going to be pure about it. And I think that's way cool. So there was some guys out there doing that and experimenting with that. And then we, me, Scott, Ed, um, and a few others were using this modified line and slingshotting it out. And these guys would tell us, that's not true spay casting what you're doing, Deck. Not true spay casting. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'm having fun fishing, man. And this thing's a really <laughs> effective tool. And it was in Ed and I kind of argue with each other who said it first, but one of us said, well, if they're going to call it a spay rod, which is halfway around the world, we're on the Skagit river. Let's call them Skagit rods. And we're using our Skagit lines instead of spay rods and spay lines. Right. Cause the spay is just the name of a river where all that yeah. stuff is developed. So if our modifications will say, okay, fine. We won't, we don't need to call it spay casting. If that bothers you, that's fine. I'm, I'm down with that. We'll call it this, but let me tell you something. When that two-handed rod, when we first got it in our hands, it wasn't the cool casting that was intriguing. You know what it was? The closer the line is, your rod tip is to that fly out in the current, the slower it's going to come across. And we all know, and your viewership should know, if they don't know by now, I'm telling you right now that you want your fly to swim slow and seductive. And vulnerable. In order to do that, your rod tip needs to be as close to that fly as possible as it's coming across. So we're in that big Skagit River. We wade up to our chest and we cast as far as we can with our single-handed rods and we bend out and we're holding it way out there, holding it out there. Why are we holding it way out there? So we can get that rod tip closer to the fly to come across slower. As it comes around tight, we can come down like this. 
Well, what do you think what happened when I put a 15 foot rod in my hand for the first time? Whoa, the clouds parted and the angels sang. I just overhead the damn thing. My rod tip is closer to the fly now. It's even closer. So it's coming across slower. So now I can blast it out even further and slow it earlier. And guess what happened? And now I'm still wading up to my waist and holding it way out there trying to slow it. But man, I started getting fish out there, out yep. there further. And because it's coming across slower. So the whole casting thing came later. It was just, and it still is. It's just a wonderful tool to swing flies. That two, that long two-handed rod. And the bigger the river, the longer the rod. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, you read a lot about Lonnie. You know, Lonnie's first articles and a bunch of people's articles. You were you were using single-handed rods with with heavy sink tips and teeny teeny systems and things like that. You know, um, so that that's a change. So fly speed. Explain fly speed. You just sort of did, but. Um, you know, so you're dealing with, uh, you're, you know, predominantly, you know, if you're going to fish summer runs, you could fish, you know, scanty lines and you could fish dry lines and, and, and the, the new touch and go double tapers. And we're going to talk about double taper, uh, touch and go casting. That's now the craze. Uh, but you know, that whole casting, you guys have to come together in Skagit casting was a whole different cast than a touch and go spay cast. Yeah. And, and, um, and and the beauty of what you just said was once you you know it wasn't pretty. Um, and how could you know if you had to describe Skagit casting versus traditional Scottish touch and go single spay long belly casting? Um, and we got a, a listener that uh, wrote in um, a question for that. Um, but um, you know how would you actually? Let's save that for for the uh, let's 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 save that for the question. I think we got from uh, Lady Brianna from Oregon. Um, but fly speed. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get into presentation. But um, let's talk about you know how do you deal with bumps to your flies? And you talked about you know hatchery fish pecking at it. Um, you know, uh, I there's a lot of hang time going on on my river here. You know, you you could be some of the best takes are not usually in that perfect sweet spot when that fly is coming broadside. But a lot of the best takes are when the guy's turning around talking about his uh, grandson just winning a soccer game and he's not even looking at what he's doing. Yeah, there's your problem right there. When you're fishing, you need to be fishing and not thinking about. (laughs) Well, that's that's when you have such a charming personality like mine that you constantly engage people for talking. I'm sure Decade we're gonna ask the same thing. You're talking more about life than you are about fishing. But um, how do you deal with those nitpicks and those bumps and? And those and those things, uh, those short strikes. You know, you talk to the dudes that are out swinging. Yeah, I got two bumps today. Well, it was it a bump? Was it a bottom bump? Was it was it a sucker in the back? I mean, what the hell was it? What are bumps, and how do you deal with bumps? Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. The first thing you need to really determine is who made the bump. What was the bump? We obviously were. we're I'm going to react to it and respond to it if 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 I know it's a steelhead. If if uh, so for my own rod, you know, just for my own, because I've, you know, I've been doing it so long, I, I'm, I'm 99.999% sure of what has bumped my fly at this point um, from experience. So if I know it's a steelhead, I'll play this game. I'll tell you about it in a minute. If it's uh, years ago, I, you know, especially using sink tips on those winter run rivers, um, you know, we're touching bottom now and then, or guys don't have total control of their cast. So you, you know, they'll sink down faster than it should be. And the fly is not where they think it is. So they'll touch bottom and they'll say, Oh, I had a pull. I had, a... oh man. Now how much time do I want to spend with this? 
right? So I would ask them, I got really keen to it really fast. I would ask them, did the hair on the back of your neck stand up? And if they went, no, not really. I'd say, I'd just put, put one more out there and keep going. I was confident to do that. If they said, yeah, the hair on my neck stood up, I'd say, okay. Just their, their own, you know, their natural instinct. If you've ever been, if you've never been buzzed by a rattlesnake and you get buzzed by a rattlesnake, in nature and instinct takes over. There's something amiss, right? Even though you've never heard it. Well, a steelhead grabs your fly or bumps your fly. I feel the same thing happen. And uh, so I have plenty of stories of that situation happening. And we did go back and hook a steelhead. And, and those times that I said, I'll just make another cast and move on. Very rarely did we hook a steelhead on that next cast. So, uh, so, so let's just say we know it's a steelhead. Yeah, uh, for sure. And you get a good pull or a bump or whatever. The first thing I do is that I is you don't pull it away. You don't set the hook. You wait, right? And that's a whole other thing to talk about. You let that steelhead climb on. So if you've gone through that pull, that initial pull, that initial pluck, whatever it is, and you haven't moved, you let it keep swinging. Quite often, you'll get a fish on that actual swing, right? So because the fish doesn't know the fly is tethered. He's come up. He's come up what you feel nine times out of 10. He's trying to take it. He doesn't know it's tethered. He opens up. He inhales. It doesn't go in. He turns back down. Damn it. If you're good and you don't pull it away and you let it keep swinging, a lot of times they'll circle back around and grab it on that initial swing. Okay, so that doesn't work. Let it hang for a second. And you're letting it hang for a second not to entice them to come and get it just to give them time to possibly return to their lie. Because if they've bumped it, they've left their lie. Remember that, all you people. If they've bumped your fly, they've left the lie, right? Even if you're fishing deep, they've moved for it. They've left the actual place that they're hanging out. So you want to give them a chance to settle back in, either to that lie or a new lie in, the, in that proximity. So I will back up a couple steps and... You know, I'll change the fly. I'll do that. And I think sometimes we change the fly just so we calm down and let things settle down. Um, and when I, when I change the fly, I change to something different. It doesn't have to be dramatic. If I'm using a three-inch long purple and black fly, I might use a two-inch long uh, orange and red fly, just something different. And usually a little smaller. This is in a winter situation. If it's a summer situation, yeah, I would, same thing. We just go smaller and slimmer and a different color, maybe something neutral. I go through that area. I'm not slowing down. I just do in my normal pace because that's how we found that fish, right? And then if he doesn't take on that in the, the, the actual spot where it took the fly or bumped on the fly, I'm going to feather it just a little bit and fish a couple casts beyond it. Okay. If somewhere in there you get another bump, I'm going to play the game, change fly again, maybe something smaller again, and try them again. I'm not going to make a career of this. I can tell you that right now. So after two or three times of trying this thing, whether he bumps it again or not, I walk back up, or when I say I, I'm talking about my own fishing or if I'm guiding, I'll have you go back up four or five good steps above where it happened, put back on the original fly and go back fishing. And you know how many times we get the, a fish on the original fly, maybe 10, 15 feet to 10, 15 yards below where we initially hooked it. Yeah. Initially yeah. got the, the bump. And what I really feel has happened, and it's happened a lot to me, a lot, a lot, a lot. And what I feel has happened is 
sometimes when we're fishing to that fish that bumped our fly, he's gone. He has moved or she, and some, maybe they've moved upstream. You don't get them. But a lot of times I think they come in, they grab, they miss, they swim downstream and settle in down below. So by putting on the original fly and just going fishing, you'll find that fish again. And he's had plenty of time to rest and you get the grab down, down below. Um, there, there's more you could talk about, but that's basically the, the drill I do. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Let's quickly, before we take another break, let's talk about times of day. Are you a really early morning person? Do you like afternoons or are you basic on water conditions? You base it on water temperature. Um, how do you feel about their diurnal cycles? You know, um, you know, we talk about steelhead, uh, in, in one of the podcasts I did, I think it was with, uh, Tom Larimer. He, he guides under the chutes, and when that sun came up above the canyon, and it's kind of uh, ironic that I get the same type. We talked about bite windows, and uh, it seemed to me that, yeah, there's always a first early morning bite. But I lately, since I've gotten older, and I hate to, to start early mornings because I don't want to freeze my butt off as much, um, my bite window that if I had to bet a million dollars on is always about 10, 11 o'clock to, to about noon. There's something about that 11, 12 bite and then that later 3, 4, 5 o'clock bite. And and what do you think that is? Do you think it's a diurnal cycles of a steelhead that has pre-programmed predator hunting instinct in the big lake, i.e. the big ocean waters where there's vertical migrations of shrimp, uh, cephalopod, all different types of prey and they time their cycles to that or is when the light is most abundant at 11 o'clock because they're hiding you know we, we only catch we only philosophize uh, in our empirical thoughts about steel in, a, in an environment that is really not their choice environment these fish have no reason to be up the damn river for no reason at all other than to spawn and procreate and yeah. and be nursing nursed yeah. until they get out there. Their life is in that ocean. Their life is in Lake Great Lakes and Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Lake Ontario, Lake Erie. That is that is their that is their crux of their years. So is that mentality that they develop out in that huge ocean or Great Lakes environment? Is it transported? To the river fishery, where we only see a glimpse, a small glimpse of their life, and, and we bet measure all our feelings and 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 thoughts and, and empirical formulas around this. But I think that a lot of their pre-programming as to what they do in the big water goes into the river system, whereas like a fish, a fresh run fish, uh, is so hot. A chrome fish is so hot, and then once they get acclimated, they get bored sitting around the TV. Hey, do you want to watch this? What do you want to have for dinner? Chinese, you know, Thai, what do you want to... It's sort of like this mentality of this beast. How do you gauge it when, you know, how do you view those peak times when the bite is hot, when the bite is not? And Lonnie Waller wrote a beautiful piece for Tom's Wild Seal and Salmon. Is the bite on or is it not? And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but... How do you view that, and what is your biggest success? Is it are you a crack of dawn guy? Do you have to be at one place in the canyon at certain times because I know the bite's going to be there? And how reliable was your predictions to that? Because I know that at three o'clock on my river right now in January, I got to be in one spot because I could fish that damn spot all day long in the morning, and then at three o'clock to four o'clock, shit's going to happen. How do you what what experience have you had like that? So. 
So overall, first, I just want to, uh, we just talked about those S rivers and a little bit about the Grand Ronde. I've spent uh, every bit as much time guiding and fishing on the Deschutes River, uh, as like you mentioned, Tom, where Tom fishes. Um, <clears throat> here's my take on it. And these fish have proven it to me. When low light happens, when the shade's on the water, in that, in, in the, say, the, in any of those summer run rivers, and particularly the Deschutes, uh, they come out to play. They're more aggressive. They're closer to the surface. Or they'll come to the surface because it's secure. And like you said, being predisposed from their or conditioned from their ocean life or their Great Lakes life, uh, when did the when did the when does the feed come out? The feed comes out when the, in the low light because they feel safer too. So our steelhead who are ambush feeders from underneath those, you know, the, whatever the little fish are, and they don't feed on shrimp as much as we think they do as far as I, my research is done. But uh, in any event, just say shrimp uh, and, and smaller forage fish and bait fish, they come up near the surface to feed themselves in low light conditions. And then our steelhead come up under them. So yeah, there is some, some conditioning to that as well. Um <clears throat> When that sun gets on the water a little later in the morning, I agree with you. Um, so, yeah, in the summertime on the Deschutes, I'm at the crack of dawn. That's just to maximize the amount of time I get to fish in the perfect low light conditions. Do we get plenty of fish at 10, 11 o'clock? Provided that the sun is at an angle that it's not looking straight in their face. It's, to, it's usually behind them um, in that late, beautiful morning sun. I think that sometimes... Uh, the things have warmed up a little bit at that time of day in the morning. Um, and the, this, the light's still low enough. Our flies look different with the light on the water versus not on the water. I mean, there's, you know, your fly is a basic silhouette. Uh, as far as we are concerned, I don't know exactly how a steelhead sees. Um, but I know that when it's very dark outside, they still see my silhouetted fly. And then when there's light on the water, there's light that reflects up off the bottom onto the fly. It's going to look a little different. And um, yeah, you know, we, on the Skagit, there was an old guy, one of the great icons back at British Columbia guy used to come down to the, the Skagit all the time, Jerry Wintle. And he was known for sleeping in and letting all the, you know, the crazies get out there, the Dawn Patrol guys and, and, and get the first crack. And then he'd just kind of roll out of his, his airstream trailer and head down to the river around 10, 30, 11 and catch fish behind everybody. Um, why did that happen? For one, you know, he's fishing then where most of the guys are burnt out already and slowing down and thinking about lunchtime and the light is still good. And, you know, those fish. Good continue, point. Good point. Yeah. Those fish continue to move around as the, in the low light as well. But one thing I'll say, when you ask me about the, the, uh, the, the, the best conditions, um, when do you see the deer? When do you see wildlife? You're driving down a country road at, at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 6 a.m. That's when the deer are out. Drive through that same area on a, at 2 o'clock on a sunny day. Where are the deer? They're all bedded down. Where are you? You're in the shade because it's hot out and the sun's blaring down. Those fish, you know, and that's something that Tom Larimer got on. He's like, okay, you know, John Hazel and Deck Hogan are taking a, net, a midday siesta because we just fished the morning and, and we're going to wait for the evening light. So Tom said, well, I'm going to fish a sink tip and I'm going to fish deep because those fish will probably still take a fly 
And he's fishing through the middle of the day with sink tips, which is great. And they caught fish. But those fish, which proved to me that those fish do hunker down. And can you catch a fish in the middle of the day? Sure. Am I going to catch five to 0.1 in the shade with a floating line in the summertime? Absolutely. Um, So they're still there. They, you know, they just go deep. They don't move. They don't, they don't come up onto the shallows as much. They hunker down. And then in the wintertime. So another thing that, that I like to say is I fish the mildest part of the day. So on a hot, hot summer day, and I like to use my floating line. I, I don't want to fish a sink tip in the middle of the day. I just don't want to. And I think it's great. The guys that want to do that, but it's, it just doesn't feel good. I feel better. Like I talked about, if it's a super hot, sunny day, you're trying to find shade, right? Yourself as a, as an animal. Um, I, I, I'm much more comfortable in, in, in the, in the low light situations. So I will say to fish in the mildest part of the day. So the warm summer months and the fall, the mildest part of the day is morning and evening. In the wintertime, the mildest part of the day is in the middle of the day. Right. In the true winter. So you've given you start time seeing to- midges hatch. You start seeing stoneflies yeah. hatch and things. Start. Totally. Nature, quiet. nature. It's the quiet time. It's 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 the comfortable quiet time of the day. You know, nature. It's all one vibe. It's all one karma that gets together. And all of a sudden, you're on a Great Lakes River, and it's cold and freezing. All of a sudden, a few midges pop. You might see a, a little tiny black Terranar, a Taniopteryx stonefly come wiggling down, and bingo, that hole that you fished for hours or that yep. run you, you swung through. All of a sudden, nothing. So it, that it's 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 it's. Uh, biologically related, it's temperature related, and before we take our next break and, and ne- take the next question, um, run timing, um, timing of the run, um, biological clocks. You know, I'm a firm believer in full moons. Full moons um, uh, lessen the melatonin buildup in steelhead, so steelhead migrate. Um, full moons lessen melatonin. Mel- melatonin. Uh, and thyroxine in the systems of Atlantic salmon and steelhead gets them all jazzed up like they just smoked a crack pipe. And when you have those uh, environmental factors, i.e. through the pineal gland that full moons have effect on, uh, tides have effect on, um, those fresh chrome fish are hot. They don't really care about water temperature, but once they come in, they settle in. Um what, what do you believe in a lot of this stuff and their aggression and their bite based on biological factors like full moons and, and tides and things of that nature? Well, yeah, I mean, you have, you know, if you're fishing in tidewater section in the river, the tide is important because it brings fish in. But I, I, I have to be honest with you, the full moons and the pineal glands and the thyroxine and all that stuff, man, I'm going to go um, on Tuesday morning and start swinging flies at six o'clock and I'm going to finish swinging my fly at seven o'clock. And whatever thyroxine levels and hands <laughs> are being agitated, or whatever, they, I, give, I couldn't care less. I'm going to swim my fly. Now, if you're flying in the water, you ain't going to catch a fish, I'm right, bro? <laughs> you know what I mean? If, it, if I'm going to go watch the football game and it's snowing and blizzarding, I'm still, and I bought my seat, I'm still going to go watch the football game. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I and and I I'll, I'll be honest with you, even dam counts and all that stuff. When I'm in 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 my guiding mode, when I'm in full time guide, I didn't want to know all that stuff because I have to get up in the morning and be the ultimate cheerleader. And got to punch in, got to punch in. I, if I punch had box. Moon phase was bad, and the tide was bad, and there was only twelve fish came over the dam. How am I going to get out there and tell you, Matt, we're going to kill them today? <laughs> Hang in there, buddy. 
So spoken like Deck Hogan, perfectly <laughs> spoke. Okay, we are having fun here, folks, talking about our wonderful Micus Chrome elusive dark red buck friends. So we're going to be back. Um, we're going to take a couple questions. We've got three more questions to answer, so we got to keep moving. Um, but this is a very entertaining deck, and I hope you guys out there in Hollywood Waters podcast world is are loving it as much as we uh, two old white dudes talking about steel at our. So we will be right back. And lines have been around since Cro-Magnum Man and Neanderthal Man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on a, on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion. They're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear are, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for, for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, when that fish takes your fly, you're going to be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I could say about them. Um, in the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and their different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic, which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications, uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive per further into the passion for Atlantic salmon. 
Welcome back, Hollowed Waters podcast geeks and gurus and shamans and senseis. We are talking the migratory space series here with the one and only iconic and very entertaining Deck Hogan. And uh, I am loving it this much. Uh, Hope you guys are too. And we're going to take a question here and then we're going to get into reading Steelhead Water. We're going to get into why Steelhead Eat Flies. We're going to get it. We got a lot of stuff to cover, and we're going to talk about a chapter, a presentation out of Deck's book where he keeps yelling at us not to mend. And, um, but we're going to talk about when you're supposed to mend and uh, other things. But, uh, this is a question from, uh, Brianna from East Moreland, Oregon. I don't know where that is. I think maybe somewhere around Portland, I think. But, um, uh, she says, I have been learning Skagit casting for about five years. What is all the new hype and focus on touch and go single spay casting is it difficult to learn um deck uh you want to talk about let's i think what i saved this for was um talk about your skagit casting and the style when you guys were just fishing one-handed rod fishing teeny 300s and sink tips and air uh, scientific angler type one type three type four You know the stuff that Lonnie Waller and Trey Combs did at, at you know Babine up on on the on the Silver Hilton Lodge and things like that. You guys, yeah. there wasn't a lot of spay talk back then. It was it was well, you know it was the it was the guys that like you know the Harry Lemaires, the, the the real true spay guys, the the the, the English, the Maxwells, the the Anglophi- the Anglophiles that came to the West Coast that brought the, the the Scottish long green stick you know casting style. Then you guys made all these funky lines, and then you had to develop a style of casting for them um let's talk about that and then your your focus on you know touch and go everybody's single spay touch and go i had a guy from the west coast that that was friends with with Pero, and he did a lot of um he knew all the legends and he's he's trying to you know touch and go with intruders that weigh about five thousand pounds with big metal heads on them and cone heads and barbell uh, heads on them so let's talk about how you developed that skagit casting and and which she's getting into but um and and about the focus now on the new touch and go and why that's sort of the craze lately okay so uh, just for fun is that guy you're talking about dave goodman uh no but you know dave goodman and, Dave and, Goodman, Dave Goodman, I just saw about a week ago, believe it oh, or not. No kidding. Dave Goodman, it, I, he's from he's from uh, Washington, D.C., right? That Dave Goodman? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. Dave Goodman cool. and I go way back to the Cumberland Valley limestone days. And Lori, <laughs> <Don't watch> tried, <laughs> Lori tried fixing him up with one of her girlfriends, Kathy Wheeler. and uh, But I, I ran into I ran into him the other day in front of the uh, TCO fly shop in on the Yellow Breaches in Boiling Springs, and I almost died. And he almost died when I saw him. So, hello, Dave, if you're listening, you're you're, you're hey, crazy. You're the time, craziest buddy. dude I've ever met in my life, Dave Goodman. So God bless you. Keep being crazy. <laughs> Same guy. Same guy. Anyway, so go back. <laughs> yes, buddy. I can't believe I'm, you mentioned Dave Goodman. I am rolling right now. Um, okay, so uh, it sounds like a lot of stuff going on there. I think I got the gist of it. Um, thanks for the question. What was the, the, the lady? Brianna. Name? Brianna. Thank you, Brianna. Yeah. We'll get to that in a, in a second. Uh, Brianna. no, that's Rihanna. That's Rihanna. <laughs> the casting thing. Just to continue on. So, uh, the, 
we're we're casting these big flies and we've made these sink tips we, i've talked about i told you when we first started we would just overhead the thing and and uh <clears throat> and we start figuring things out and we find out that there's two casts basically and there's a single spay and a double spay and none of us like the single spay because with the double spay we were able to lay the line on the water right on our setup which you know later be called we'd call a sustained anchor and then you would sweep loading off of the water which would help load the rod and then with that short fat line that belly section you could turn over the big fly because mass moves mass and you didn't need to know a lot of timing and dynamics because the lines were pretty short skagit lines um then there was some development there and modifications as we all do where everyone's going to tinker around and whatnot um but we, we we are definitely doing the sustained anchor cast. We didn't like the single spay because the single spay is a touch and go cast. We weren't really sure. So that was the one, if you're right-handed, if you're on river left, you, river flowing, flowing from right to left, that how do you make a sustained anchor when you need an upstream anchor cast with a single spay? So another long story, but we developed that snap T as we know it now back then to, to eliminate that single spay with our Skagit lines because sustained anchor casting is more effective and easier for people than the touch and go cast. Is, are you following me with that? In, 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 Absolutely. In, yeah, yeah. And I'm loading sure, off the water. Yep. You set it up. You've got all the dude day. Make sure everything's good. Load it off the water. Make the cast. Snap T. Same thing. Everything's on the water in front of you. Sweep around, loading off the water to make your little D loop. And I say little D loop affectionately because the lines are relatively short. The rest of it, you're just shooting. So you don't have this big D loop. Um, Then all this development happened. And you know what? All the development happened. And the lines today that you can buy in a box are pretty much the same lines we were making in 1989 and 1990. You just buy them in a box now. <laughs> it's a short, fat belly section, a running line, and whatever. And everybody's like. making them. The it's same. amazing. Everybody, even Orvis, is making them. So that's even crazier, you know? So for people who, you know, when I do my clinics, that you know, so many people that are new to want it. Well, I'm so confused about all these lines. You know what? With the shorter stuff, this, the, not the long belly crowd and the double taper. That's a whole different thing. And most people are not doing that. Uh, most people are going to the river with either the Skagit line set up or the Scandi line set up. And they're both relatively short. The Skagit line is the sinking one, the one that sinks. And you use a sink tip and you put a larger fly on it or a small fly, but it's the sustained anchor cast with a relatively short belly section Snap T, single space, peri or not single space, double space, peri pokes, things that load off the water. Okay. Irrespective of the, the manufacturer, they're going to have their little names for it, you know, their 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 fancy uh selling point names, and that's great. They need to do that. But guess what? They're 25 feet, and you put a 540 on your seven weight, 540 grain on your seven weight, and whatever sink tip you like. If you're fishing an eight weight, you might put a 570 or six. And all the manufacturers have so don't be so confused. In a floating line situation, if you're going to use a Skagit line because people like their Skagit line because they're a little easier to cast, and that's fine, you've got to put something on the end of it. So you can't just take the Skagit line and it's all the time. Like, well, I'm floating line fishing, so I'll use my Skagit belly section 
and put a put a uh, a leader on it. That that that's not good. You need they're just they need some length out in front. So what you would need is a floating a floating tip for your skagit line. But instead of doing all that, I use Scandi line for most of my fishing now. And Scandi line is again, it's not very long. They're 30, 35 feet, depending on what weight you have. And, and and you learn the grain weights that are going to match up to the rod in the way you like to cast. And the, the skagit line, unlike the or the scanning line, unlike the skagit line, is just a big chunk of mass that moves mass. The scanning line has a rear t- a rear belly section in the rear of the line where that's the weight that you use to make your D loop and do all the dynamics of your casting. And this long front taper, this beautiful continuous taper that drops down into a do this long cone. Energy transfers through a cone. That's the casting. That's why our lines have taper um, and transfers to the cone. So with the scanty line, you're going to be turning over smaller flies. It's still good size flies, but smaller, you know, compared to the big winter stuff. And that fly, those lines are going to give you a nice, sexy, beautiful control loop that lands delicately. Right. Now, you can do sustained anchor cast the scanty lines. But you can do the touch-and-go cast. And just to clarify, it's not new. Touch-and-go cast is not new. Well, well, it's the first cast. It was the special so yep. You're starting to recognize it because for so long we avoided those touch-and-go casts because they're harder to do. We think they are at the time, but they're really not way back when. Reddit that's back in the 1980s, everything they could do to avoid it. Uh, we do things we call triple spray. You're on river left and the wind's blowing up river, so you have to use the upstream anchor cast. We don't know how to sit there, we know how to do is double spay. So we take our line way upstream and then do a double spay. So uh, just to avoid it. So now, if you think about snap feed, you just do all that in the air. <laughs> It's all right in front of you. Okay, so those. So to answer that question, the touch and go cast. Let's let's go to that. I, I, is it different? I think she asked it if there was the craze about it. Well, here's the craze. If you have a floating line, yes, you can do it with sync for sure. It's much easier to learn with a line, and it's just kind of it, it just makes more sense with a line. Than a than a skagit style line in a big fly uh, to do the touch and go cast. But when I when I'm fishing a floating line in the summertime, me personally, it's pretty much close to a hundred percent snake rolls from my downstream anchor cast and single space from anchor cast. I touch and right. go all day long, and the reason I is faster. You're back in the water twice as fast. If you did a double space. 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, 5, 1,000. By the time it hits 6, 1,000. Same length, same distance, same distance, uh, same angle, everything. Snake roll, here you go. 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1. It's back in the water. It's that fast. It's half the time. Last time I checked, the fish were in the water. So I want my fly out there as fast as, I, as much as I can. So, give, so given the, that I'm able to do it with a floating line situation, why not just get it back out there? Learn how to do the touch and go cast. You're twice as fast and it's easy to learn if you just get some good solid instruction and you commit to it and you learn with, and, you, and you put a piece of yarn on and you practice those casts, they're, they're not that difficult. You know, the, you, we, we, we've used those sustained anchors as a crutch 
and, yes. and a good crutch, but I, they're easier because you have the timings way different. You know, you have to do things aerialized and be aware of where your fly is. But man, I would learn it and uh, and, and have and have it in your arsenal. I, I'm I'm the more arrows in my quiver, the better. I want to yeah. know how to do every single cast. And I think you know we're, we we've become infatuated now with. Um, with the, the long sustain, uh, the long touch and go cast that the Scots and, and the Anglophiles have made popular, and we're going back. You know, it's great casting when you're fishing Atlantic salmon rivers or you're fishing wild summer steelhead rivers where the fish are close to the surface. But you're not going to do a lot of, you're not going to really do without damaging your upper body to to cast a big heavy weighted intruder with a heavy sink tip on a touch and go. You can do it, but. It's pretty ugly and it's, and, and it's, and it's, and it's really difficult and it's too much work. Um, when you could just do a uh, slow sustained gadget casting to nice, get it. easy, sustained. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a fad that people don't understand what the fad is all about, but the fad is it's two different types of fishing. You're fishing with flies near the surface. You're in Iceland fishing and, um, a Scandi line that is is the new Scandies are actually more like Skagit's in a lot of ways, but you're fishing a long double taper line. We're going to talk a little bit about Dex double uh, delta taper. Um, it's it's a fly. It's, it's, it was the traditional Austin Francis, Jock Scott way of casting a green heart stick casting on the river spay uh, in, in Scotland or the Tay or anywhere where the fish or, or in Iceland where the fish take little micro tubes size 16 micro tubes near the surface. It's, it's a, it's a glorified roll cast done with a, 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 a peak and valley Alpine touch and go uh, rod motion that is easy to learn and it's beautiful to watch and it doesn't take a lot out of you, uh, and uh, it, it's got its application, but it's not doesn't have its application if you're trying to catch a fish uh, on right. a big intruder. Right. You were talking about the difficulty of trying to do a touch and go cast with a uh, with a heavy setup, and and the, and how taxing it is on you physically. The opposite goes though, right? When you have a floating line and you're doing touch and go casts, you're hardly moving at all. Exactly. Right? Versus exactly. a sustained anchor. So that, that too, the fatigue factor, I mean, it's huge. So yeah. wherever I can, I do it. But, um, Amen. Okay. Let's get into reading steelhead water. Uh, you, that's going to be a big one. And we got a lot to cover here. Um, so we got through that. Uh, so deck, you, how do you approach rivers if you are fishing them for the first time? If you're coming into water, um, and so much what you've written about is, is your hollowed waters of your your Skagit, your your sock, and and you know the mixer pool and things like that that you've known so much about. But when you get to a new river, uh, you know, how, how do you approach a river? What do you look for? And we're going to get into each individual parts of this. But uh, are you one that gets in the river and starts casting, or do you creep into the river like a heron slowly? And how many times we walk over fish near shorelines and how many times we step over buckets and creases and seams that, that we should have fished first. What, what advice do you give beginning spay casters who are totally infatuated or even novice or even advanced spay casters that are totally infatuated with launching bombs as opposed to say, Hey, I'm going fishing now. And I'm not in a casting competition at the San Francisco Casting Club. How do you how do you tone your clients down into that to start thinking fishy, not thinking casting? Yeah, so good question. That's a great question, and that's something that's near and dear to all of us, all of our us guides. Uh, 
and people who are more about fishing than casting. Casting is, is, is a, as my friend John Hazel says, this, the two handed rod or anyway, it's a weapons delivery system, right? You're, you're getting the fly out there and then you're, 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 you know, using the rod as a, as a fishing tool. Um, it's not about distance. So it can be about distance. If the, if, if the, I, people say, how far can you cast that? And I say, as far as I have to, right? Which a lot of times is <laughs> not that yeah. far. Yeah. Um, it, it it can be a little far just to set it up at a nice angle and and but not about getting way out there um again you have another question that has a lot to it um reading water if i go to a the, first of all it's it's kind of hard to really i found to really talk about water without visualizing and and you know even when we're doing a, a casting clinic near your home water i'm out there i always say okay we're on this we're on this one piece of water uh, and, and sometimes it's not even moving. I did one on a pond, you know, and we had to have this imaginary riffle and current seam and all this. Uh, you know, I need to take in, look at a lot of different water and really talk about it to break it down. But suffice to say that you want that, as we've heard it before, you know, walking speed, the water that the fish like to hang out in. Very important. Walking speed. Uh, you can walk next to it. You know, I floated, we're floating in the boat and guys go, what about this spot? Wow. This looks beautiful. I say, look down and the boat's just flying through that. There's no, you, you, you'd have to do a sprint to, to keep up. Yeah. It's a beautiful rocky bottom, but it needs to be slow. It needs to be, uh, have structure. And when I say structure, it doesn't have to be big giant boulders and it's got to be a hard bottom. They like a hard bottom a rocky bed, whether there's big nuggets in there or small nuggets that undulate, there's some kind of structure and, and, and movement on that bottom, but it's usually hard. Uh, I'll tell you some stuff about that in a minute. Um, inside bends are good because the current sweeps to the outside and creates a soft spot on the inside, soft meaning walking speed water. Steelhead like an even flow. Um, tailouts are good. It's all about the water speed. Usually the best runs I found, the most productive runs have something below them, like a rapid or, you know, on two islands where channels are coming together and form the main river again. So, uh, a, a substantial, shallow, long, shallow stretch, something substantial in the river. And then above the pool, also maybe on the exiting the pool to leave the pool, there's another hefty rapid or, you know, a lot of fast water, something that really holds them in there um, for a big classic pool. And again, I'm talking about something substantial that consistently holds fish. Um, then there's all kinds of spots on the river where you can find the fish. Again, there are those, you know, I talk about the walking speed water and, and a little bit of, and we're going to swing the fly. So we need some breadth to the, to the water. Now that walking speed water that I aforementioned was three to three to six feet deep. Most of the steelhead we take are in three to five feet water. It can be two to six feet deep. They'll be in, a, but most of those takes we get are three to five feet. I know that for a fact too, over testing hundreds of pieces of water and actually finding the depth with a depth finder right, uh, right through the runs where we, where we catch them. Um, I'll tell you about that in a sec, but uh, those places can also be they they don't necessarily have to be in a classic run where you start here and you end here you can take that beautiful little piece of water that's the seductive speed and the right depth with the right walking speed yeah the, the walking two, three speed. inches per second eh you can put that anywhere on the river does that make sense you can find 
anywhere on the river. I have a couple really fast ripping riffle heads that you're like yeah, heads of the runs while you're in there. And so the water's just ripping and you launch your fly out there quarter down because the faster the water, the more you want to quarter down to get the slow speed and it's swinging and it's coming across pretty heavy and fast. And boom. All of a sudden it slows down for five feet. Bam. Fish on fish on and it goes out and you may not have necessarily felt that it slowed down but here's how i know this i've consistently caught fish in places like that i'll wait out there sometimes i just muscle out there and wait out there to see why was the fish laying there and i'm fighting the current i'm fighting the current i've got a stick hanging onto the stick and i don't use a waiting staff yet i'm probably even close to it but i grab a stick to wait out there and i'm fighting the current and soon as i get to the spot where i hook the fish ah everything slows down and i could stand there i don't have to hold the stick everything's soft and it's beautiful and sure enough it's only five feet wide and 10 feet long enough big enough to hold a steelhead or two my point is is that whether you're in a, a riffle a glide a slot a tail out all these places that look different and have different surface dynamics and hydrology where the steelhead lay i found they're all the same Yep. Walking speed water with that nice depth that they like to hold in. So kind of cool. So my approach to a river when I've never been on, first of all, you know, gaining public access and finding these areas is a difficult thing. So if I've never been to a river and I haven't talked to anybody, I like to find the boat ramps to put my boat in and go down and read the water and go to the familiar places that I know uh, that, that look that, you know, look like steelhead water and just start to feel them. It takes a while to really learn all the subtle nuances of a river and all those little pools and all those little places. I found uh, um, I'm kind of proud of this too. Um, over the years, I've found little pockets and little secret spots by watching the birds. If you're floating down a river and you see a couple of ducks, golden eyes or mallard, exactly. or whatever you have to be, and they're in the water and they're just hanging out on the edge, yeah. better go check it out because I guarantee you, those ducks are not in there treading water that's moving at 14 miles an hour. Yeah. They're moving. They're in slow water. So you pull in there. And I found tons over the years, secret little pockets because of seeing ducks in the water and actually taking the time to go over and explore it. And sometimes you get in those spots and, uh, you know, it's just going along a bank. It's not it's not a classic bend or anything. It's just going along the bank. You find out that the current just juts out a little bit. And there's a little soft area and you feel, wow, that's the perfect depth for steelhead to hang in. Sorry, ducks, I'm kicking you out and I'm going to fish this little spot. And uh, I made a living on that on the Skagit. So. That's, a, that's amazing. You know, river bends, uh, river outside of river bends going into tailouts, there's something about those where the deflection of those river bends yeah. um, and, and that, that sweet water, that walking speed water, that these little buckets, like you said, you get into that spot and, oh, a lot of it that water has to co-align with the structure that is perfect for those fish. And you talk a lot about it in your chapter and presentation, which we're sure. going to get into. Uh, but you, on our rivers here, that outside river bend that has that, that jagged rock or that the, those, those perfect size boulders that they could cushion themselves with and rest in those little sweet spots and those, those little buckets that are, those those hollowed quiet places in yep. between take chaos um, those are those that's where those taking lies are so your thought on taking lies um holding fish moving fish what well, how do you like the fish to be i mean where where have you found your success when everybody it seems when fish are moving a lot no one's catching fish when fish start to hold fish 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 yeah they tend fish to bite are caught 
and they're in a bite window. They could see things. Um, what, um, you know, your your thoughts on that? Where do you where do you look for those first staging lies for those moving fish? Um, if you're going to take go up a river from 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 the ocean or from the lake, you're going to look for those first barriers to migration, and that's where you usually find these fish, these holding fish, and those holding fish in those in uh, little buckets. Um, what are you what are you going to look for when you're out in big water and uh, you're presented with boulders? And I'm going to skip to your presentation article here about in front of rocks and back of the rocks. Um, you know, what is your take about boulders and, and how they fit into your general scheme of things? All right. So uh, just backing up something you said, I like that I described about a good piece of water has, you know, something substantial below it and something substantial above it. And you said between chaos. I love that. <laughs> between <laughs> chaos, yeah. between chaos above and chaos below. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I kind of liken it to a windstorm. If you're out in a field and the wind is just howling, it's a hurricane force wind and there's a tractor and there's a barn and there's a couple bales of hay and you got to get to that barn. You're going to duck in behind the tractor, aren't you? Right. To exactly. the wind. You're going to, then you're going to look out from that tractor and go, oh man, I got to get in that behind that bale of hay. And I'm going to stay in the path behind that bale of hay to break the wind as much as I can. So I, so there's your boulders, there's your things, and you know that slow the current uh, as far as fish coming in and setting up further migration and stuff. Yeah, generally, you know the first good when you're when you're coming up from from tidewater, the the first the first areas and runs that are, are, are water types that that provide those elements we're looking for, um, walking speed water structure three to six feet deep. You know, cover close by. Um, it's, it's a rare day that they're just out on the uh, in the middle of nowhere. There's, they usually have somewhere to escape to rather quickly, whether it be heavier water, deeper water, um, and, unless the light's low, right? Then they feel secure to drop back and a tail out. Um, you also mentioned outside bends. I was going to mention that too because outside. I, mean, I mentioned the inside bend, but really the great the inside bends are wonderful and can be, but outside bends. Take a look at those. In fact, I talked about the ducks. Those are the places I usually find them. It, yep. it, the ducks is on outside bends or along straights. Outside bends are wonderful. And you're right. There's something that happens. Not all outside bends. Some of them are just ripping, right? But some of them have that. The current stays, kind of swings over and stays near the, the center river. And then on that outside bend, there's just good structure and the jagged rocks you talked about and those wonderful spots. And they have that deep water refuge close by. Um, we have a spot on the sock we call Big Buck Bend because it's deep water right next to the real juicy water, which those big bucks will come out of that deep water and hang on the sweet spot. But they're not one little kick of the tail and they're back in, you know, deep water away from things. Um, I, I don't know if I'm losing track. There's always stuff to talk about, but to, to keep answering the questions you asked, put me back on track, man. No. You're, you 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 got it. You talked about the river bends, and I wanted to hit on that. But let's get yeah. into, you know, I'm going to get back into your chapter on presentation, which is still by far one of the best uh, steelhead chapters I've read in any steelhead book. Thanks. I talk about where to find where to find steelhead, and um, you know, and it's the great article you did in in Perros Magazine, which yeah. is part of your book. Don't mend. And I'm just going to do a little quote. 
here from from you're talking about presentation and, and swinging a fly, and it's as basic as can be. And it's and swinging a fly is the ultimate Bible for all salmonids, whether it's a brown trout taking a soft tackle wet fly, a rainbow trout taking a soft tackle wet fly, or or a nymph swinging a nymph. And now we're in a Euro craze where we're we're bottom snagging snagging trout. I'm sorry, guys, I, I didn't say that, <laughs> but we're bottom lifting trout, and we do so yeah. much lifting in the Great Lakes. We invented lifting. So uh, to 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 sum up Great Lakes fishing, just go where the gravel is, right, Duck, and you're all set. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to talk about that because I can get in a lot of trouble. Um, but you're right. Presentation at its most basic level is a simple wet fly swing, cast across and slightly downstream, mend some line up and behind the fly, and follow the fly's path across the current and your rod tip until the fly shows to a stop, slows to a stop. Take a step or two downstream and do it again. That's it. As it fly swings across, it is under tension from the force of the current. Generally, the goal is to have the fly swing as slowly as possible across the current. In broad, even flowing thing is easy to accomplish. There are no conflicting currents that need to be negotiated in order to achieve a slow, steady swing. As I tell my clients all the time, in this type of water, put it out there and don't mess with it. The simple swing truly is the foundation of all presentation for traditional steelhead fishing, end of quote. But for all Atlantic salmon fishing, for all any type of trout fishing, you swing flies. In salmon in Alaska. The down in the the Macedonians in when 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 um, Polinius um, saw Alinius saw them and when when the Romans were conquering uh, Macedonia saw the Macedonians fishing the first fly the red fly jungle cock feathers with red wool they had line uh, twine from a horsehair on a sapling they took it out there they swung it in a fast uh, generic Alp current. And that current was the tension of the water that brought the fly back to the air origin, which is the tip of the rod. And that's the basic down and across broadside swing that you t- that that is the foundation for what we do. Swimming the fly at slow, seductive speeds. Um, so there's ways of doing it. Don't mend. But then there are ways that you have to mend in certain conditions. Yeah. Let's talk about those mending. Since you are agnostic towards the mending, let's talk about when you have to mend and how to get those fly to swing in this so slow, seductive speeds. So, in what you just read that I wrote, uh, in its most basic form, right? That's that, that's our approach to swinging flies in its most basic form. One thing you notice that I did include in that most basic form was that. When we laid the fly out at the proper angle, what was what? What did I say we do? We mend some line up behind the fly, right? That everybody right. does auto right. auto mend. It's called an auto mend. auto mend. Yeah, I call it auto mend. And there's times you don't want to do that either. And even though I said that, that's you know, there's times where if you hit the right angle, especially with the floating line, you hit the right angle, you can get it swimming early right away. But a lot of times we can put that little mend up in there, and what that is is that's your setup to swing slowly across. If you just lay it out there and you did nothing, that fly would eventually, that line would be pushed by the current and it would pull that fly across fast, right? So by mending that line up behind the fly, you've got, remember I said earlier that the closer the rod tip is to the fly, the slower it's going to go. You want to have, ideally have that line, you know, it's close to the fly, but you want to have the line there with it rather than over here. Does that make sense? So then it doesn't get bolted. Of course it does to you. Um, so we do that setup, man, which throws the line up 
behind the fly, but also positions the rod up behind the fly. And then as it comes across, and if you're in good fly water, which most of the time we are, because that's what we're fishing is good fly rivers on good fly water, that good fly water that we're talking about is swing water that has some breadth to it and some even evenness to it, that most of the time you get that set up, man, and you're following along, following along in most water with the rod tip, just slightly behind the fly or right with it. When it comes into the heart of the swing, that middle third, that's where we get most of our fish. You agree, Matt Sapinski? Absolutely. That's where we get most of our fish. Absolutely. And I ask people, do you think we get the fish in that middle third because that's where the fish are? I don't. I think it's because that's where our fly is swimming the best. Exactly. That's when it looks the most vulnerable when it gets to that spot. And now I can, I, I've actually seen it happen. So I know for a fact, but and it gets in that little area. Yeah. Sometimes the fish is there, but that's when it's swimming the best. So I've seen the fish come up. You're swinging out here. It's going a little faster than, you know, than it will be right in that middle third. And the reason it happens in that middle third is because that's where the current's going this way. Your fly, your rod tip is right over your fly. It can't help but swing slow. It can't help but swing slow at that spot. You can't mess that up too bad. Um, you can if you mend, though. Um, we'll get to that. So I've seen the fish do it. They come up. It, the, the fish is out there. He comes up. He follows it along. Sometimes he goes away. Oh, where'd he go? And then as soon as the fly starts swinging nice in that middle third, he comes back and grabs it. Yep. I've seen them follow up, follow up, follow up. As soon as it gets in that middle third and slows down, and you can see it, that fly will be coming across. It'll slow and it'll drop when it slows. Why wouldn't it? It's slowed down. There's gravity involved now. That fly will drop a little bit, even if it's two inches. It means it's slow. The drop doesn't matter. The fact is it's slowed. And then the fish comes and grabs it. I've seen them come from, you talk about fish being in shallower water. I've seen them come from the inside Flies coming across, coming across. Oop, it slows down right here in that middle third, and they've come in and grabbed it from there. Yep. So that shows me how important that fly speed is. Now, if you're in that middle third, and given that the current is nice and even, the breadth of the run is nice and even, which most of the, most of the time, the good taking lies, it is even. You've set it up. It's coming across. And right in that spot, sometimes there is a slight belly. The fly is slow, but there's a slight belly. And I see guys try and take that belly out right in the heart of the swing. Yep. And I used to have nightmares. I promise you, I'm telling the truth. Uh, laying in bed, you know how you feel like you step off a curb yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump or whatever when you're falling asleep? Why I'm did you do that? Why, why, why did you just do that? I told you not to do that. How many times do I have to tell you not to do that? Please, sir, do not do that, ma'am. I told you, don't do that. Just leave it all. Leave it alone. So they come into that spot. Yep. And they just auto mend. And I've seen it happen. Here's the nightmare I had. The fish is coming up. It's open its mouth. It's about to take it. And when that mend happens, what does the fly do? I don't care how good of an A-H-E wood mender you think you are, that, that that fly is going to move. And when the fly, the fish is on target and it goes and he comes up to grab it and that fly goes like this, he goes back down and you take your two steps and move about your day and go, well, I didn't get any today. Yep. And you have no idea that a 15 pound buck just wanted to take your fly. So. <laughs> How many times do we want to shoot ourselves? I mean, it's like, it's like so classic. And, and, you know, we've become such an, um, 
a compulsive society that everything we do is so compulsive. Our be- our yeah. behavior is so compulsive that we auto mend. We do things that we do things and no matter how many times. I, I usually like say, uh, that's the tenth time. That's the fourteenth time I've told you not to do it. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna record it on my phone, and every time you do it, I'm just gonna press the recording on the phone because it's gonna tell you. So we tend to do that. So we're not. We're, we're, we're conditioned to, to mend, you know, when I, when guys, uh, they go out trout fishing, the guys in Montana and, and, and or in, Cal, in upper Colorado and the mountain streams of Colorado, mend your line, mend, mend, mend. You, you don't want to mend. You don't want to do a lot of these things, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a place for men, men not. So controlling your depth of speed, how deep is deep enough? Okay. And then you talk about that. How deep is deep yeah. enough? You know, you just mentioned A.E. Woods' grease line technique and Jock Scott. And these, you're, you're talking a different fish there. You're talking an Atlantic salmon where you don't have sure. to do a damn thing right. other than just get that freaking floating line with that fly three inches below the tip, below the surface. And that Atlantic is born, is, is so focused on the surface. The only other steelhead that are extremely focused on the surface are summer steelhead and wild summer steelhead because they're basically rainbow trout. They're in water conditions where it's 60, low 60s, upper 50s. Everything moves to the surface. The oxygenated water is everywhere. They don't have to hunker down because they're deep in, in skagit casting. And the new way of fishing that we fish today is skagit fishing because we're going down. We never thought we could catch winter steelhead in the way we're doing it. You have to put on a spawn bag or a glow bug or a nymph or whatever, and that's the only way you're catching them. So you are now catching them. How deep is deep enough? Here is the crux of the problem that I deal with a lot of times is, am I too deep? Are you bouncing bottom every once in a while? Yes, it's okay when the fit, when the water's 33, 34 degrees, and water temperature means everything towards the swing. Because right now, 34, I got 33-degree water temperature on my river yesterday. I'm getting down to them, and I'm slowing my flight speed down, and I'm mending the shit out of it to get down as deep. And I'm fishing T14 and 10 feet of T14, and I'm getting down because I need to be there because these lethargic fish. But how deep is deep enough, and will fish come up? And let's talk about your philosophy on that whole thing. Okay. Uh, before you do, if you don't mind, just for, for your viewership, it's important to me, for me to, to, even though I talked about that mending and not mending in the middle third, there's times where you need to mend. You'll find those times there, you know, but for the most part, when it's in that section, don't mess with it. You're set up men nice and early. I don't, when I'm doing a setup mend, I'm very aware of what the good potential water is for the breadth of it that I don't land my fly in the good water and make that setup, man. I land to the outside, barely to the outside of the good water. Does that make sense? And do my setup men there so that my fly is actually fishing vulnerably and seductive. All those wonderful words that we like to use in all sexy, sexy, sexy. That's sexy water. Look at that water out there. It's sexy water. (laughs) All right. So I just want to make sure everybody knows there's times to men. Even in the swing, there's a time to men. I can't tell you exactly when it is, but, you know, there might be an obstacle. And then just real quick, Matt, we talk about downstream mending. I do very little downstream mending. I have found that if you just use patience. And you let you, 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 once that fly passes that third area where people want to downstream mend when it gets a little slow, if you just wait, it'll catch itself and go on. Don't mend downstream because you're going to jerk that fly. If you can point your rod ahead of the fly a little bit, but that's all. And just be patient and let it go. I rarely mend downstream. 
Um, so anyway, uh, so how deep is deep enough? How deep is deep enough? Here's my take on that. Steelhead, we're, first of all, we are swinging flies for steelhead. We've already talked about it. We're electing to fish one of the most difficult ways. It's, very, it's effective, but it, it's not the most effective. It's far from it um, across the board. Uh, but I don't care about the other methods. So this is what I believe in and what I'm going to do. Uh, <clears throat> so knowing that, I am looking for the fish that is going to move from my fly. Because for every one steelhead I get, there's a bunch down there that probably did not move to my fly and are not going to move to my fly. So we've established that. So knowing that, and that my fly and that, that steelhead we, we talked about earlier, when they're in the ocean, they usually feed up. They come from underneath and feed up. So they're already conditioned to feeding up, looking up and coming up to grab things. If my single fly, is down as deep as I can get it. I've heard people say, man, if you're not losing flies, you're not catching, you're not fishing for steelhead. And I'm like, well, if you're losing flies, you are not fishing for steelhead. That is a fact. You're not. Uh, you're dealing with that. If my fly is touching the bottom and banging along the bottom and not getting hung, that I'm asking the steelhead to look down to take that, which I don't think that they're very accustomed to doing that. So it's that we've established that. Now, However, I do know that when the water's cold, especially in the temperatures you're talking about, 33, 34, they're pretty lethargic. They're not going to move far. However, here we go. What's good steelhead water? I don't care if it's one, winter, spring, summer, fall. Good steelhead fly water is that we, two to six feet with three to five being optimum. Okay. The steelhead that's going to take the fly, in my experience, world according to deck, I call it, isn't the one that's laying on the bottom. Right. The one that's going to take, even if the water's cold, he's up. He's a little active. If you were to look down on them, you'd see their fins because they're riding in the current. Right. A fish that's super dour and not interested in, and his fins are going to be in because he's almost laying on the bottom. So we got that. So if I can, and if I'm in, let's let's just say four feet of water, just that's where the the lie is, four feet of water, and the fish I'm fishing for is close to the bottom close to the hard bottom. He's six inches off the bottom. So now that eliminates three and a half, another half a foot. So now my fish is three and a half feet down, which is pretty deep in four feet of water. <clears throat> He's this long. If my fly can be above him, even halfway splitting that current and moving slowly, a big steelhead, you know, even a small 27 inch steelhead, which is a nice fish, but it's not that big. It doesn't take much for him to move up and take that fly. So if I can be hovering above him, I'm happy. I'll just cut to it. I'm happy in my winter fishing and my cold water fishing to be somewhere mid-column, but moving slowly. I'm confident moving slowly. Any deeper than that, you are flirting with hanging bottom. Again, this is my experience with hanging bottom. I got got four bumps today. How did you do today? I got four bumps. Well, guess what? They were bottom. (laughs) I always say right off the bat, we got four. Usually, if something's going to bump your fly in the middle of winter, he's made a commitment to take that fly. Steelhead are not. I mean, they yeah. they're like Atlantic salmon. They they're usually going to make a commitment either to tell ninety yeah. percent of the time they're going to give you the finger and say, "What are you out of your mind? I have no, no desire to take your damn fly." Or they're they're that ten percent. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to attack the goddamn thing and I'm going to get the thing over with. Atlantic salmon are the same. I've spent so much time with Atlantic salmon. They make a commitment. So, and if you're bumping a lot in the winter time, yeah. 
Yeah. You're fishing too deep. Yeah, you're you're not doing a day of bump. I have all these bumps in a day. Well, really, <laughs> I I agree with you. Or it's, it's a little smolt, a little par, a little smolt or par that are messing with it. Yeah, something. You you know they're gonna the, over time that the you know occasionally a steelhead might feel like a grain of sand hitting you, but you'll know even one that you know it bumps it. It's more of a knock and if it rips it or bangs it. I mean, there's something aggressive about it. I agree. Yeah. So bumps anyways, one more thing. You're catching lots of steelhead. Go ahead. One more thing before we take another break, because we still have two more questions to answer and we got to talk about why steelhead take your fly. Um, the the um the, the the good the good swing versus the bad swing that you talk about and I think we already covered that we covered that in the moments in that swing when it just the depth that it takes and when it gets into that soft slower spot we've already covered that but yep. there's one thing about the good swing and bad swing and I'm going to quote from you there are situations this is your quote there are situations when purposely adding speed to the fly is desired it's usually when you're trying to coax a player into taking during a game of changing flies or or bumps and 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 nose yeah. packs and, and steelhead do nose pack and bump. Yeah. They do do that, but it's 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 a rare occasion when they do that. But they do play with their food like cats play with their food, and we'll talk about that whole mind game. And their attack speeds in the big water when they do attack prey, they usually circle their prey and they slam it with their body or smack it with their head, and then they come by to pick up the stunfish. That happens a lot with Atlantic salmon and steelhead in big water. But conversely, as you as you view the well presented fly, it hovers enticingly above the fish, hackles splayed out nicely and undulating in the current. That is the sweet spot, and that's the good part of the swing that you've been talking about, correct? Yep. Okay. We are going to take another break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to entertain two more questions, and then we're going to talk about why steel at eat flies, and then we're going to end up with one-minute zip clips. That's when I get into the deep part of, of Deck Hogan and ask him what kind of food he likes to eat and what kind of movies he watches. The fun stuff, I know. But stay tuned, guys. We are in the migratory space season, and we are talking the pure, unfiltered, unplugged Deck Hogan. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything 
and, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. And it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. Welcome back, and we are talking with Deck Hogan in the Migratory Space Series at Hollowed Waters Podcast, and I am your host, in case you forget, um, and uh, we are going to get into why steel at eat flies. Uh, we're going to take a couple more questions, um, but, you know, I want to talk about this whole thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at a small part of a steelhead or Atlantic salmon's lifetime when they come into a river system. It's not a big portion of what they do. And a lot of what they do is based on their natal imprinting when they're younger, par in the stream, what they see in stoneflies and mayflies and baitfish and blah, blah. And then they go into the big ocean for years and that forms their whole personality, their whole niche aggression, their apex feeding. Um, and, you know, for us to, to try to to philosophize uh, on why they take a fly, you know, I, I always go back to Lonnie Waller's great quotes from uh, his great article he did, Wild Steel and Salmon, Atlantic Salmon, Tom Perrell's magazine. He says, I am convinced that these steelhead, all are the rest, are all at times motivated by agitation, anger, territorial protection, curiosity, sex, hunger, instinctual imprinting, or fear. It could be a blending of those so subtle and intertwined, it will never be completely unraveled. It is indeed the mystery grab. There is no wild card of individual differences. I have seen eight steelhead lined up in shallow tail out of a pool, only three feet deep with water, so, so a clear fish seemed to be guiding in the air, and none of them wanting to take it, and then one fish comes out of nowhere. So no one really knows when this happens. Um... The kicker is a steelhead will change its mind at any given time in a millisecond, and that's the mystery and that's the beauty of the bite that we bring. Uh, curiosity killed the cat, I think, in a lot of respects. Steelhead are bullies and aggressive. They jockey for territorial gains, especially when it's coming closer to spawning time and gravel. Um, there are dumber fish, and they're smarter steelhead. There are some steelhead that will never take a fly. It really is not in their... Uh, life survival strategy for a steelhead to take a fly because that will negate everything they were, were supposed to do. There are only two rules that they're supposed to abide by. To eat as much as they can, get as big as powerful as they can, and put their genes into the next gene pool. That is the only two Bibles. Love thy father, love thy neighbor, and that's it. Those are the cardinal rules of a steelhead. For them to take a fly is basically their aggression, and it's a it's a genetic personality that they are the apex predators that take the fly because they don't want to be shoved around. They don't want a trout to come in or a little par to come in and steal out of a fly, take that fly away from them. So in, in those experiences, um, what are your personal philosophies uh, on all this? And I, I gave you my ideas, but what are your thoughts about yeah. that? Uh, and uh, how much do you agree with aggression or how much do you think it's just instinctual how do you feel duck so uh having having watched 
many, 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 many steelhead move to the fly and take the fly. And mind you, when I, when I talk about this, it's not, I don't see the fish first. I just walk, I can see my, my, the flies that my people are fishing. I stay even with them. I know the runs. I know where the taking lies are. And I watch the fly. I see it. If we have a nice little white wing fly running in the surface, I can see it. Uh, <clears throat> The, the, and I'll talk about that, but uh, I, I, I love the thing that Lonnie wrote. I love what you say. And, and Lonnie ends up with, when I'm first reading Lonnie's, I'm like, hey, wait a second. Those are human emotions. You're putting on a, on a cold-blooded animal with the brain the size of a pea. Anthropomorphism. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are you doing? What, how, can, how can you do that? That's how you feel. We don't know that they're curious. Why would a fish be curious? A predatory. And then all of a sudden he talks about, but we don't know. And it's a mystery right on. So, so yeah, you can throw all those things in there and, 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 and speculate and humanize it and think the why, but we really don't know. We don't know. I do know one thing that, that uh, if I was sitting across the room from you and I threw my car keys at you, you're going to react. You're, you're probably going to try and catch them. Yeah, that, that would be your or throw them back at you really throw hard. Throw them back at you. And if, even if it was a tarantula, about at some point, you're not you're going to abort catching that thing. So anyway. Um, so yeah. do you find? So I, did, I, I think that they, they just having watched them, when I watch them take the fly and move to it, they can't help themselves. When they break off their lie and they raise up, rise up, when they fall and you talk about circling around, I've seen that a lot. They definitely, a lot of times, will make a big circle before they take the fly, come in a circle. Yeah. Um, when they're doing that, can I tell why they're doing it? I have no idea why they're doing it. I just know that they seemingly can't help themselves with that pea-sized brain. I don't know that it's aggression. I don't know that that this little thing in in a in the surface of the Deschutes or the Grand Ronde or the John Day or wherever, the Bulkley, right under the surface that's an inch and a half long, and that fish is four feet down on the bottom, how is that invading his patch? How is that something that he needs to be aggressive and get rid of? I, I don't fully see that. I see that he's a predator, predatory animal, and that whatever this thing is going above him, nothing does that in the river. Nothing fights the current across the current and holds vulnerably in that current going across as does a tethered fly. Nothing does it. A cat is hatching out. It's going down. He's not strong enough to buck that current. Even in those slower spots, he's coming straight across perpendicular current. It's the only thing that does it. So that thing is hanging vulnerably, I see. It's moving and the hackles are doing its thing, like I mentioned, and all those lovely things that we think are so important. They make us feel better. But I think the power of the swing itself, that fish just can't help himself and he's going to react to it, possibly due to a conditioned, latent feeding response from being in the ocean. Food presents itself. He cannot help it. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how I feel about it. All right. We are back. We had a little sound difficulty. Uh, let's get back to um, what we were talking about, the mystery grab, what happens. Uh, do you think uh, when you talk to people that are out fishing British Columbia, they're out fishing your rivers, you're seeing your big flies. You guys tend to tie bigger flies. Um, you tend to tie a lot of, you know, biggie, you know, if you look at intruders and the prawns and 
and the squiddos and the things that we're supposed to imitate uh, salt water life. Do you think that there is a big difference in the salt mentality of steelhead that the salt induces different prey? Uh, it induces a different aggressive mentality based on the fact that the renal system and balancing the salinity, whereas Great Lakes steelhead are just rainbows that come out of fresh water into a freshwater stream. Um, how do you how do you look at that whole thing? What is what is your whole gig on that? Well, when I'm when I'm close to to, to tidewater and saltwater and you know short winter rivers, I definitely model my flies in the shape of ocean critters they don't you know we're not exact patterns by any stretch um so i i I feel that there's some connection there it makes sense to me um but i've also seen that you know that be defied i i i still think that well first of all (laughs) when i did my research for passion for steelhead um i found out that it, it it broke my heart and 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 made me um feel like the first time I heard there wasn't an Easter bunny <laughs> um, that the steelhead didn't, didn't really feed on prawns as much as we thought, because I just love the idea. And I love fishing prawn style flies and love the idea that they're taking my offering as a prawn that they've learned to eat along the coastline. But it sounds like that it's not a very important part of their diet. So why do they take them? I'll tell you why they take them. The power of the swing that I was talking about earlier, Right. Um, I, I think I, I really think, and this is going to, you know, this might be upsetting to some people. I love flies as much as the next guy. And I really enjoy taking fish on my own creations that are, you know, lovely and beautiful and difficult to tie because they're such a great fish, but I don't know how much it really matters. Um, I, I think a lot of the things we do are, are for us to have a connection to how we perceive conditions to be. Um, it just makes more sense. And I feel better about fishing a shrimpy, squiddy looking fly near the coastline. And then when I'm inland on the Columbia River tributaries, I'm using something smaller and more drab looking up near the surface. You know, it just wouldn't feel right to put a four inch long squid fly <laughs> on the Deschutes River and vice versa, you know, tidewater fish size six little freight train or something. It just said, go right. I do think both flies would work under certain circumstances. So that might, that might wreck the, the feel good thing for some people, but I don't know how important it really is. I, I like the power of the swing. Yep, exactly. What, um, let's get into fly choices and fly styles and stuff. Um, what, just, what about uh, colors? <laughs> What about colors? Let's talk colors now. What 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 what's your theory on colors? Are you are you big about UV light and how fish see and all this stuff like that? And and if you had like you know certain people, yeah, or some people say you know if it ain't black or purple, it, you know you don't fish it for summer runs and you know et cetera et cetera. Orange and reds for winter runs. How do you feel about color? And how do you think that matters to the fish? Or how do you feel confident? in the colors that you fish in, in yeah. fly pairs. Yeah, you keyed on it there, confidence. And, I, you know, after what I just said, that segueing into the color thing is, is uh, I mean, I, I, I like colors. Um, I like, again, a lot of it's for me because, you know, we have to talk about fishing the right fly. Are you fishing the right fly? I hope you're fishing the right fly. If you're going to fish for an animal that you, you hope maybe you get one a day, 
when things are really good, you know, seems more often than not nowadays, a good angler putting some time in is getting one every three days. And I'm sure there's some people out there that are going, man, that must be nice to get one every three days. Yeah, <laughs> so you like get one every month. Right, fine. So how do you know? Uh, you, you, you keyed on it, confidence, um, black and purple, you know, I know guys, that's all they fish summer, spring, winter, and fall, black and purple. I, 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 again, I think a lot of times those colors are something that feels good for us, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a gray day that's, that has some brightness to it. It's like a thin layer of gray and a glacially colored water. I mean, if you put an orange and red fly on, it looks so neat from above. And you fish it and you feel good about it and it feels right. And, it, and you get a fish on it. The guy, your buddy comes behind you with a black and purple one and he's feeling so good about it. And he catches a fish. Um, again, how do you know? So they say dark fly, fly, dark day or dark day, dark fly, bright fly, bright day. People just say that. And I'll ask some of my clients, when you say that, what do you think that means? Well, you fish a dark fly on a dark day and a bright fly. On a, well, no, why? Well, well here's the why. On a dark day, if you use a dark fly, you're banking on silhouette, right? If you hold your hand up to the cloudy sky, you're gonna, you're not going to see the color of your hand too well at twilight or at a dark day, right? But if it's a bright day, so you have a silhouette. So why not exploit that and use something dark, right? It, on a bright day, if you hold your hand up to the light, it reflects off the ground and bounces the light and bounces the back on your hand. You see the color of your hand. So if you're using a bright fly on a bright day, the bright reflection is they can see the color. And how do we know it matters? I know a lot of people are probably hating my answer. It really doesn't matter a lot. It's really up to us. Because, I, I again, if I'm fishing three days for a fish, how do I know what color to use? You better stick something on there and believe in it. I can tell the people who aren't confident. They have a bunch of flies in their hat. used to be a patch on their vest, but we don't wear vest steelheading anymore too much. They stick them in their hats, and I'll see a whole bunch of wet flies and all different colors on a guy's hat. And, hmm, he's having a rough day. If you, you know, you got to put one on, believe in it, and keep going. I've so many times had – had, well, I'm not even going to get into it, but but uh, that, that's kind of my take on that. So don't, I work within parameters within reason, you know, near the, it, to me, it's more about size than color. Everyone's going to have their favorite color. I mean, a guy I fish with, he, he you know, he, he'll never use a blue fly. He just will not put blue on there probably because of a football team he doesn't like. And then his buddy, the, our other friend, he, he swears by blue flies and they both catch fish. So. Okay. <laughs> it makes total sense. Are you a big fan? So if I was going to look into uh, Dak Hogan's fly box, are you a big fan of the new intruders? Uh, are you still a classic Alex Jackson spay hook type guy? I saw that one beautiful fly. What is your iconic fly that you posted on social media the other day, about a couple yeah, months ago or something? Uh, what What's the name of that fly again? Skagit. There's several of them, but the one you see the most is the Skagit Mist. The Skagit Mist, yeah. Yeah. So which do is you really fish those? Do you like? Do you still live on live and die by these patterns, or yeah. do you have? Yeah. Do you go yeah. to the more modern flies? What What do you do? Yeah. I, I yeah. Well, I mean that specific pattern. So uh, I am more of a classic guy still too. I've never really got into the intruder thing. Um, and and for for personal reasons, uh, one is I just don't think it's necessary. 
Um, again, it's what's, you know, it's what gives you confidence, right? Uh, so back in the evolution of the intruder fly, which are wonderful and have all kinds of movement and they're big, they got bigger and bigger for a while. And I was having people show up in my boat and they bought a bunch at the fly shop that were way overdressed. And the, these guys couldn't cast them thinking, and that, but having zero confidence unless they had this big monstrosity on there. And uh, the person who invented quote unquote, the uh, intruder, uh, I fished with him for many years and uh, he used to fish pretty dang small flies. on the Talking scat- about Scott Howell. No, Ed Ward. Ed Ward, excuse me, Ed Ward, yeah. And uh, he fished, you know, size two, little hackle tip wings and little winner's hopes. And one he called the black nymph that was just, it was tied on a on a one-aught Tiemco or Mustad or whatever, but it was just thinly, sparsely dressed. And he caught plenty of fish. Uh, my point is, is that your your you know where your confidence is important but i was on this crusade to tell everybody hey you don't need that big ginormous fly to to, to catch a steelhead um and it doesn't have to be a, a you know a, a classic well-tied you know space style fly either um but it doesn't need to be massive in order to catch a fish getting yeah. back to that, it's the swing that that matters but yeah if you look at my box you're gonna see Space style, D style, combinations thereof. My my three well-known winter flies are that Mahoney, which is a space style fly with hackle tip wings. Right. My Coast Orange, which is a prawn type fly with hackle tip wings. And then, of course, this Gadget Miss, which is a is basically an Ackroyd style D fly, just with the colors that I liked in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. So what well, you got your favorite fly, you got your favorite rod and reel, you got your favorite river. Um, how do you fish? How, what do you, what do you teach your people? How do you, how do you guide? Do you, do you fish, uh, very slow? Do you fish very quick? Do you, uh, shotgun and run? Um, do you, uh, do you gravitate to familiar and, and popular pools or do you, do you fish every piece of water or, or how meticulous are you? How, 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 what is your credo? Um, and how long are you going to beat some water to death? There's guys that hog pools. Uh, I'm a firm believer that we don't, sometimes we could fish forever and not get anything. And we come back 10 minutes later and we get him. So when the, when a steelhead wants to take a fly, it's a fly. But I, I'm a firm believer that we fish too quickly a lot. Or, or, or are you a run and gun type guy? What is your, what advice would you give to steelheaders on how much, how, how long and how quickly to fish steelhead water? So uh, that's a great question. That's uh, something we haven't talked about yet. Uh, when you, earlier, you talked about uh, the boulders and fishing the boulders. And are they in front of the boulders? Are they behind the boulders? You know, there are certain boulders that they do like to hold in front of, whatever the hydraulics is. They like to have a piece of structure by them for security, um, I think. Uh, sometimes a hold behind the boulder. Sometimes a hold in front of the boulder. Do you know that it doesn't matter to us a whole lot? Why? Because of the method. We take a step. We step between cats. If you start at point A, a defined point A, and you're going to end at point B, and you swing that fly, and you take your steps, and you swing that fly, you're going to cover all that stuff, right? The method works. Use the method. Um, Now, as regards to moving through a run, if I'm guiding, of course, it's going to depend on my people's skill level, how much water we cover. You know, there's times where I say, well, let's fish through here fast. And then we'll go to the next run. 
or let's, if I, as soon as I say fish through this fat, that, that never happens because they don't know what that means. Most of them. Right. And if I start asking someone to fish fast, they're not fishing well. I need them to fish well, but I need them to keep moving. I never, I've had guys where they'll make three casts and not move. And I say, Bob, if you hook a steelhead on this next cast, the trip's on me. Well, how can you say that? I go, because you just put three casts in that same spot and you haven't hooked a steelhead. You're not going to hook one on the fourth cast. You got to go to the fish. We right. need to move, look for that active fish for sure. Um, so yeah, I move through a run and, if the if the if the river's busy and I'm on a good known protective piece of water and we fish through it or I fish through it and we don't hook anything and I know the river's busy, I'll make another pass through it. Right? We leave smoke to find smoke. I'll make another pass through it. That's pretty rare though. If I make a pass through a run in the course of the day and we don't get anything, I'm moving to the next piece of water. If yep. we catch a fish or hook a fish or something happens in a piece of water. And even if we if we hook a couple of fish in a run, for sure I'll fish it again, absolutely. But but most of the time in my guide day, I found that uh, with a, with a couple of decent set of anglers, we fish six to eight pieces of water in a day. Um, I don't camp on water. The only time I ever camp on water is if I'm the Dean River and tide water, and the fish just keep coming to me. <laughs> which I've experienced before. <laughs> just keep it's tough not to on the Dean river, the, the fish sort of come to you on the Dean river they come to you, and, yeah. and you're at the right place and you're always at the right place and you're always at the right time. And the fish yeah. always come to you on the Dean river. And yeah, if I hear course. another word about the Dean it's river, I'm going to shoot myself. Um, but anyways, okay. So uh, we're going to, I got to take um, one quick break here and then we got to come back, take two questions. And then we're going to talk a little bit about your line designs, your Delta two tapers and some of the lines that you like to fish right now and then we're going to get into zip clips um just quickly before the break uh how much how much dry fly steelheading do you do like dry fly pure you know moose turd yeah, me, specials me, me personally uh when i say personally i'm comparing myself to guiding uh when i'm on the deschutes or the grand ron i keep naming those rivers because those are my two main uh fall fall rivers that i fish um and guide on Probably, probably ninety percent of my fishing is on the surface with a dry fly, skating. Yeah, and always has been. I fish. I well, not always has been, but for a long, long time. And the 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 time that I don't fish it is certain water. It's a little difficult to fish. I want to see the fly. If I can't see the fly, I, why do I fish on top? You know, what's the point? And every now and then, I do like to kind of take my eye off the water and watch the eagles a little bit and identify birds and look at the sun, you know, sunset and whatever. And I take my eyes off the river a little bit. If I have a dry fly on, I need to keep it on, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge dry fly guy. And I honestly believe that you're not making any sacrifice using the dry fly. If anything, you're seeing more that fish that comes up and plucks your fly when your flies, I'm we're talking dry line when it's five inches under or six inches under, you might not see anything if he comes up and looks at it. But if that flies on the surface, he's come closer and he'll leave a boil and you need to watch like a hawk. I don't just watch the fly. I watch around it. You might see a dorsal, a, a dorsal fin pop out behind it subtly you might see a tail fin you might see a little boil three feet off your fly yeah you might see that why because he came special. to it and turned away you don't yeah, see that with the wet fly 
It's truly special. That's why I love uh, Atlantic salmon fishing so much yep. and fishing drives for Atlantic. So we're going to take a little break right now, uh, the final break, and then we come back, answer two questions, and we're going to end up with one-minute zip clips. Stay tuned. We are Migratory Space Series talking with the unplugged, unfiltered Deck Hogan. We are right back with Deck Hogan. Yeehaw. Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing if you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger uh, you're going to really enjoy these rocks
We are back in our final uh, part of the episode here with Doc Hogan, and we're going to talk. Uh, Doc, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you've done a lot of, of, of work uh, inventing equipment and new lines. You know, you were instrumental in the Skagit development and stuff, and you came out with a new Delta II taper with Tim Rejuff. Um what are some of those? How to explain that line to us, and explain the lines that you like to use, and 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 the various types of tapers that 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 mend into your type of fishing. Yeah. So uh, that those delta lines, you know, which have kind of become a thing of the past, unfortunately, um, were wonderful. They were more. I remember the wind cutter lines from from Rio that were fifty fifty five foot long heads, uh, bellies, and you right. would. Take front end off you could put a sink, uh, floating tip on a sink tip whatever you wanted and since they were 55 feet long or are they're still available you know a little more casting dynamic um you need a, bit, you need a bigger d loop and 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 since there's more line you could cast far if you needed to if you were not casting far it was super easy you didn't need to shoot a lot of line and i just love the way that the style of casting went um so we me and Tim worked on that line right around 2000 and it's just, it's basically just, a, you know, a nice chunky back taper and, and uh, goes into a kind of a second stage taper and then tapers out sort of like a scandy line, but not quite as thin. So you could add the tips on there and, and right. uh, longer. Um, the, I the, still use them. I still use yeah, them. Yeah. They're great. They're wonderful casting lines. So um, I, I'm going to be super honest with you about this, about how, how, how things have changed for me a little bit now. So I always, I, I went from the wind cutter, then we developed the, the, uh, the, uh, the Delta. And there was some things on the wind cutter that I liked, wanted changed, would have liked changed. And I told Tim that when he approached me, you know, what do you want? And I said, hey, I would do this and this to the wind cutter, which was a great line. And I think we can improve upon it. And I believe we did with that Delta. Um, I would go do my casting clinics, which I do these clinics all around the nation and in Canada and, and uh, all year long where I go for a weekend and I have usually a fly shop sponsors it. And I have six guests, six students for the day. It's a day long thing from like nine to nine, nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. And I basically it's for beginners advanced and, 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 and everything in between on, on, on casting and, and fishing. <clears throat> so I, when I do those, I would always come up with my Delta Spay I would, and I would do my demo and my whole class with the Delta Spay. And I would talk about the virtues of using a longer line to learn how to do this. And I kind of likened it, whether I was right or wrong, I likened it to learning how to play guitar or piano. And the kid wants to learn how to play rock and roll. But the discipline should be that first you learn your scales, first you learn about music, and then you learn some classical stuff. And once you've laid down that, you know, move on and, and become your rock and roll star, right? Because you'd be amazed, right? How many great rock and roll players really know some classic stuff? They were schooled in it. So I kind of likened it to that. Then you can switch to whatever you want. So I would do that. I'm taking a long time to answer this, but uh, I would show up and all six of my students would have Skagit lines. And then I do the other one and I tell them the virtues of learning on a long line and they'd all have Skagit lines. And then the next year I'd come back to the same spot 
And, the, and there's always a couple of guys that like to take the class again, just for pure recreation in and of itself. And they'd still have their Skagit lines. So finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to do my students a service because obviously my crusade on telling you to use a longer line is better. Uh, I, I'm going to do them a service and I'm going to learn how to get back into the Skagit line and the Scandi lines and the short stuff because they were showing up with Scandi lines too when Tim came up with that Scandi compact. And I put the deltas away and I started teaching it with the stuff that I see that they're going to use and they're going to use it because that's what the fly shops are selling them. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and continue to sell them. Fly lines on training wheels. And training wheels. Yep. And are they effective? Absolutely. Can you can you get away with just flopping out a Skagit uh, with a Skagit line, just banging it out there somehow without hooking yourself and put a mend in it and catch a fish? Absolutely. Can you get highly skilled at it and super efficient at it? Absolutely. There are, you know, you, the same line that the guy that the I was the one legged 80 year old woman could just <laughs> flop out there and catch a steelhead on is the same line that that someone like you or I or another ardent student of the sport can get really dialed in and throw a laser beam loop a hundred feet right where we want it. Right. Um, so I started doing that and then I said, God, I'm not getting any younger. I like this. So, and then I, you know, went to the Scandi line and, and, uh, but I can tell you right now that, that, uh, I, I'm starting to go back to the longer stuff myself just because I really do love it. Um, yeah. the Delta space, I don't even know if you can get them anymore. That was just, you know, we we did some tweaks to the original Delta. Oh, they're still available. Are they still available yeah, through Airflow? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I haven't really kept up on it, to be honest with you, because after the Delta space, I did a line of lines with Tim called the Tactical Steelhead. Right. And, and uh, I still love those lines. And they were kind of a, a little shorter than the Delta's. And they were, they were, you know, the Delta was always an integrated line. The Delta 2s came out. We... We, we made heads, um, but they were calling it uh, an integrated line. And these tactical steelheads were more in that 40 foot range. So not as long and they were wonderful, but the timing was not right. And again, the fly shop guys, they weren't buying into it. And now there's like this little cult out there that there's, you know, you go on eBay and they last them a second. Cause there's all these guys that this little following in those lines that are always trying to, beg, borrow, and steal, and trade, and get them in their hands. And one of these days, I'll find a company, maybe come out with them again, because people are tending toward back the longer lines. Um, I've been enjoying the bridge line from Tim Arsenal up in BC, which are a little longer. He's one of those Spayorama dudes. And, uh, you know, that was him. Gale Force is big now. The, the, the guys Gale Force is big. Us. Yeah, and those are long. And all those those lines are are the big ones they're designed you need a bigger rod right yeah. so I, I just don't want to go to shoot with a 15 foot nine or ten weight you know you i, I like to scale to a pro you know to appropriately what i'm fishing so there there's some good lines out there that are a little longer and and for for listeners it, it, it it's time it's fun especially with less steelhead you know i i, I haven't mentioned this yet but Prior to the two-handed rod, when we got done fishing, we didn't talk about casting. We just talked about the fishing. But how many conversations are we in now, even 30 years later after it's become popular and mainstream and everybody, you know, you go on the Steelhead River, everyone's got a two-handed rod now, everyone. And I watched that go from I was the only one to, you know, on certain water where <laughs> to now everyone is. Um, it's fun. 
It's part of the process that we enjoy. And if you really like casting and you like, and you want to learn more, challenge yourself and get, get one, get a Delta two spay, get, get, get a Gale force, go, go long. And, and, and you don't have to do the 70, 80 footers. There's ones that are 40 to 50 feet long. That'll work just fine on your 13 foot seven weight. Um, yeah. It's it's the progression of the angle. It's a progression of the spaycaster. It's what you want to do. It's what. Yeah. So we went through a river runs through it era of spaycasting where everybody started doing it. That's and then we want now we're in a stage where a lot of people have left it because it was too hard to learn. Yeah. And now we're into a stage where I'm I'm an addict. I'm a I'm a disciple. I want to be purist and I want to be like Austin Francis 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 and Jock Scott and I want to cast like those guys that do in Scotland and I want to be pure. So yep. it's all, it's the same thing we get with nymphing, go sure. from traditional to Euro to bobber nymphing to dry. I mean, it's, it's whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy. Okay. I got one more quick question. And then we got two so questions from them and we're ending up barometer weather systems. What do you timing of the runs barometer weather systems? You said I'm going fishing and I don't give a damn. Uh, yep. but do you, do you see any influence that weather rising or, or dropping water? Uh, weather systems and barometer. What's your th- what's Deck Hogan's theory? Yeah. So so getting back to you alluded to. Yeah. I mean, I get up in the morning and we're going fishing and we're going to go fishing and we're going to swing the fly and whatever happens happens. However, I do know that when I when I was guiding full time and remember in the mornings on the Deschutes, I'd walk outside my cabin and I would just I would just smell the air and I would know, I would know <laughs> how the day was going to go. <laughs> You're so in tune. Yeah. Or yeah, we're going to be, it's going to be great. You, 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 that's one thing when people ask, do you miss full-time guiding? That's one. Of course I miss the people and I miss being on, but I miss that being that in tune with nature. Yeah. You're out there every day that you can smell the air and know what's going to happen today. Pretty cool. And of course, you, you know, that was back when there was a bunch of fish around. Uh, so yeah. So after the fact or while you're in it and the fish are biting, I, I do. I'm going to say, well, what, what are the conditions? Why is this happening? And I've had plenty of, you know, just nice, sunny, steady weather and the fish are biting. However, if the barometer is falling and you're, there's fish around, yeah, baby, game on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had times where I'm in the, in the run and you have to have fish there. It has to be fished in order to know this stuff to get the feedback. Um, as a side note, I always like that when fishing's tough, and I've had a couple of friends over the years, uh, they go, I, it's t- I'm going to do some experimenting. And they do all this experimenting with different flies and different angles. They do this when fishing's tough. You know, when I experiment, when the fish are there, that's when I want, right? Yeah, when I get the feedback the about my experimentation. Yeah, anyway. Uh, I, I, I've been on some runs and there's been fish and both my clients and I'm going to do a client situation, not my own fishing, bang, 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 boom, boom, man. I'm serious. Like four five, six, maybe seven steelhead in 45 minutes. And that, and things getting dark and it's sappy and it's calm and it's just, everything's heavy and balmy. And then all of a sudden, the wind starts, the rain starts sideways, and the bite's over. That barometer falling, right? You've seen it before. I know you have. It's so cool. And you can't do, you know, now you you got to hope you're on the right spot when that happens. Because I've been in it's plenty of those situations where I'm like, this is it. 
and the fish aren't there. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, and I find it uh, different uh, for winter run and summer run fish. They have two barometer differences, and I find that. Uh, uh, fresh migrating fish, fish, fresh chrome fish in the system, uh, are brought in by those dropping barometers. But once those fish are way high up, high up the system and they're incubated in those pools, they don't like a lot of changing weather. I find that high pressure, they seem to like a little better. I'm just going to say that it's those chrome fish that coming in. So it, it's pretty cool stuff. Okay. Uh, now I got two questions. About that, one more thing about that. Just, just well, if we're going to talk about it, sure. Is that the consistency? Because I was going to say that about the high pressure too, and I've caught many, many steelhead right upriver in high pressure situations, but it needs to be consistent. Right. If you're on a low, and 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 you wake up one morning and it's high, it's not going to be a good day. You need yep. you need two or three days of consistency on either end. So go ahead. Absolutely perfect. Yep. I, I agree with that 100%. The consistency is everything and, uh, and, and the phases of the run, too. It, it's, uh, it seems those fish jacked up on thyroxine coming out of the salt or the big lake, they're going to run on anything, no matter what, how cold the water temperature is, no matter what. But once they get up and become in the upper system like rainbow trout, they yep. tend to get a little weird on us. Okay, yep. two questions really quick. We have... Dylan from Duluth, Minnesota, and we're going to keep this brief because we got to end this up. Uh, we have lots of smaller steelhead rivers on Lake Superior's shorelines, like the Bois Brule, Knife River in Minnesota, Ontario's Thunder Bay systems like Cypress and Steel. How do how do I swing flies on these small streams and rods recommended lines, etc.? That's all yours. Well, thanks for the question. Um, tough one, not having really seen the rivers or, or even heard heard of them. Um, uh, the quick answer is if it, it, maybe maybe there's not swing water on those rivers. Maybe you need to find, you know, if it's a small, typically small rivers don't have a lot of swing water. And if you do, it's a very narrow swing. Um, I don't know what size the fish are. I don't know what size flies you need to use, but, you know, probably a, a, a shorter rod for sure. You know, if you, if they're really that small, maybe those 11, 12 foot, Yep. Uh, or even a single hander spay casting it would work for you, and you just need to find those areas that have the depth and the and 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 where fish will hold. That's not super super tight and narrow. And you might only just get a a, a three foot swing, and in a three foot swing, you're you're not really going to have the time to get super deep, right? Right. Yeah. So you're just going to have to you're going to have to hope for it. That's the best I can tell you, sight unseen. Yeah, uh, I, I'm familiar with a little of those waters, uh, Mr. Uh, was it Derek? What was it? Yeah, um, Dylan. Uh, so, yeah, uh, they're small waters. You get a, s- a short switch rod, 11-foot switch rod, light, very light switch rod. I've been fishing this Orvis Mission rod I fell in love with. It's 11-foot, 8-weight, 11-foot, 7-weight. They're so light that they're lighter than a 2-weight rod in your hands. Yeah. Um, very short, um, uh, compact Skagit heads. Um, and just treat them like big wa- like big swing water, but you're gonna you're gonna have to dial in your cast. Everything's gonna be done in micro shorter things, and that's basically what you got to deal with. Shorter leaders, shorter, just shorten up. Just become a just become a midget. Well, midget you can't use the word midget. That's that's a derogatory word. A, 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 a short challenged situation. Just think of yourself as a little lily putting land in a lily puttingville, and you could deal with that. Uh, the other question is from. Jason from Calistoga, California. He says, 
I'm having a tough time. I've taken spade classes and I'm well versed in the concept of the Skagit gig, but I'm still having a tough time getting any weighted intruders to lay out nicely and not bomb puddle and fall apart launching forward. I'm either overpowering my anchors because of the sink tips in the cold winter conditions and get confused with the amount of pausing to load in the D loops necessary in Skagit casting, I was told. My end result just looks sloppy and not tight as a Scandi line or a lighter floating spay line. Help. <laughs> Again, something inside unseen. But listen, thanks for the question, Jason. Um, I feel your pain. Uh, so sight unseen, listening to the, the little bit of information you, you gave me. Um, I could be off base, but I don't think so. Um, given that your 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 setup is good and all matched up, your line weight matches your your rod and your sink tip length is within reason. When I say within reason, fifteen feet and under, um, which you can certainly do longer. But to make it, you know, what you're trying to do, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not going over fifteen feet. Probably more like ten or twelve. Um, I I could tell you right now, slow down. If you, if you think you, the fact that you use the term overpowering, that you used it, not me, that tells me that you already answered your question a little bit. You're probably rushing things. You're probably trying too hard. I would slow down, let that fly anchor. When you let the fly and the line, I'll stick to the water, let the lead every, everything on the water, let's say in a double spay. And when you sweep around, I need you to come back. Get that rod tip cocked back a little further than you probably are. A little bit more angle back like you're answering the phone angle, that angle right there, if you can see that. I would venture to say that you're going fast and you're trying to cast from right here. If you're puddling that cast and things are going down, you're probably trying to cast from here versus here. And on a 13-foot rod, for, for example, the difference between me being here and here Two inches where that thumb is up top here is three, four feet up above you. You're probably not getting enough line behind the rod. And you're probably rushing things. Try that. You're absolutely right. And, uh, and you realize, you know, sometimes just, just, just look, we don't look at each part of our spay cast. We tend to look forward. We're always looking forward. Well, the biggest problem I have with people is, is look at your D loops. Look at what you're doing with that line. Look at where your rod tips are. We just tend to look forward. No matter if you're single hand casting, double hand casting, you're always looking forward. Yep. We're not looking at the ex- entire motion of every from your from your anchor to your mouse to your D loop to your forecast. Look at how the energy is transferred from each together. of those. And if you're not putting it together, you're gonna you get, you're gonna have problems in the execution. So that's it. Deck up. Uh, it has been absolutely amazing. We've cut on so many things. We I think it's yeah. been three and a half hours now. Oh my <laughs> god. I didn't know it was going to go that long, but uh, but we covered a shit ton of stuff. I hope everybody out there in the um, in the podcast world has enjoyed it as much as I have uh, to hear the to hear the really unplugged deck. And uh, I'm going to come to a series of questions now uh, that are 30 second uh, zip clip and uh, questions about uh, just about deck Kogan and and stupid things and things that you know sometimes it's good to know more than just fishing. So. One question, number one, and these are really quick. You just got a couple seconds to answer them. And um, and uh, f- number one, what is your favorite food? Favorite food? Well, everybody that knows me would say that it's pasta. 
Um, and you know, I, I, I love a good spaghetti and meatballs and I, and I love a good seafood fettuccine. Um, oh my so God, I bet you in that fire hall, you got some good spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah. You know, it. <laughs> and I like all kinds of meat. <laughs> so you like Italian food. I love Italian food. Italian. I did my culinary apprenticeship in Italy. So I cook Italian all the time and I never get fed up with it. Oh, um, man. Favorite favorite drinks, libations, uh, spirit, uh, beer, wine, whatever. Uh, so I like a, uh, as far as beer goes, I'm 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 a I'm a the the hoppier IPA the better, and then uh, for spirits, um, man, down and dirty, sixteen year Lagavulin, Isla Scotch, oh, baby, Abby Pete, iodine, like drinking barbecue oh, sauce, just I love like, it. just like. Uh, just like a dent- dentist, uh, Novocaine medicine just yeah, goes buddy. in there, burns around, <laughs> filters. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big single mall fan, also myself. Um, favorite movie of all time? All time? Is there such a thing? Yeah, I think it, there's like one movie that you just I just keep watching over and over again because you can't get enough. Yeah, you know I I'm a. This might surprise some of you, but I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan. Oh, I was just going to say Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, so I love that. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and now oh. I love the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love them all. So, but oh, yeah, wow. I can watch Inglorious Bastards and Django over and over. Are you watching Yellowstone? You know what? I'm not. Oh, uh, my fire station is, and we're not. And some of that's because I, I just have a spouse that we haven't got into it. And, and uh, she's in, she's starting to get interested. She's heard enough. So we'll probably start watching it. Favorite book of all time, non-fishing book. <sighs> non-fishing book. Probably Jack London, Call of the Wild. Wonderful. And fishing book. Other than Passion for Steelheart. <laughs> uh, you know... Um, probably, uh, Hague Brown, Hague Brown. Brown. Yeah. Just the series winter, spring, summer, fall. Yeah. River never sleeps. River never sleeps. In fact, yeah. yeah, River never sleeps. Are you kidding me? Wonderful. Wonderful. Rod, if I caught you fishing, uh, tomorrow on the river, which, which, which spay rod would you have? Which reel would you have? Which line would you be fishing? What river? What time of year matters? Okay. Uh, let's say, let's say the Grand Ron in summer. Okay. So I would be using if you saw if you caught me this summer, in September on the Grand Ron, I would have my uh, the twelve and a half foot I call it six weight that uh, or six and a half six, twelve and a half, twelve and sixty one twenties twelve and a half foot six and a half weight somewhere between a six and a seven, and uh, I designed it with echo years ago and that's still my favorite little summer stick and i would have my hearty topo on it wonderful line and in that situation i would probably right now have uh somewhat because of affiliation i'd probably have the, the sa uh 450 scandy on it okay what are you uh, uh what uh, are you a maxima line or do you do you do fluorocarbon tip uh Maxima, maxima, maxima. Do you use fluorocarbon at all? I have, but and I, and I I have some confidence in it if I have to use it. But no, I I I'm a I'm a maxima dude. Favorite hook brand? Well, 
Um, I, you, you know, I love those Alec Jackson style hooks and Daiichi's making them now. So Daiichi, and then I love the Tiemco stuff too. Daiichi's the, Daiichi's the best in my yeah. opinion. Um, and, uh, hobbies when you're not fishing. So I am a crazed burger. I have been a burger. For those of you who don't know burger, you might be familiar with bird watching. I've been a burger and kept lifeless since I was a little kid. And it goes hand in hand with fishing, but uh, super passionate burger. And then uh, I love photography and uh, I love mountain biking and just general nature watching. And the photography, I love, I mean, I love dude fishing things, but I love wildlife photography and bird photography. In fact, if I, if I have a little Instagram account with my bird photography on it, D Hogan underscore bird photography wonderful wonderful what was your favorite destination that you ever been to oh man fishing or non-fishing fishing destination Holy favorite smoke. exotic fishing destination I've been tierra a lot of fuego tierra de fuego you went to tierra de i fuego. went there yeah and i absolutely loved it and again the bird life was new and all that and i loved it but you know my and I've been out to the Gaspé Peninsula and loved it and had a wonderful time. But my favorite fishing destination is the, the Lower Dean River. Yeah, it's it's hard to beat. Um, on that note, my friend, it has been such a pleasure having you. Thank you for spending all this time. Thanks for all the technical things we've had with snowstorms and mics going out and things. Oh, yeah. But it's been so real. You're going to come Atlantic salmon fishing with me in yep. our great state and of Michigan. And I'm going to cook for you. And uh, you're going to take me out on your river. And I'm going to come out there and haunt you. And in the meantime, brother, stay well. Thank you so much. Uh, we are kindred souls. And uh, we are going to be fishing together in 2023. I'm going to haunt you. And yeah. uh, other than that, keep doing what you're doing. Keep saving lives. Keep making a difference. And to everyone out there, thanks for all your time. And at this note, we are saying goodbye and stay tuned for a great year of 2023 for more great podcasts on Hollow Water Podcast. So, arrivederci, dovizgenia, dosvidania, auf Wiedersehen, and it all. Ciao, bambini, bambino. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Doc. Awesome time. Thank you. Bye now.